Good morning. Good. Yes, it is still morning in my part of the world. Just. I better have another coffee. <clears throat> Tip of my coffee <laughs> <laughs> to get my senses about me. Because it's Monday morning, 11 a.m. But I hear that in Texas it is like 8 p.m. And how do I know this? Because uh, ding dong, there's somebody at my door. Who's at my door? It is. Hello. Timmons. Hello, Andy. <laughs> well, thank you. How you doing, buddy? I love, a, I, I love a good smattering of applause. Yes, I do. Yeah. I'm doing yeah. good, man. Yeah, it is eight in the evening here in Texas and uh, very glad to be with you, man. Nice. Thank you so much for joining me. And I see you also have a coffee. Yes, I did. I felt because you mentioned in one of the one of the uh, promos you did that. Yeah, I'm going to have a coffee and talk with Andy. Like, and it's before I knew that you were in Australia. I thought, oh, he's drinking coffee at night. Well, I'll join him. I'll be up. I'm I'm ready. You know, doesn't <laughs> if I can I can sleep it at any time. So I figured, well, I'll have a nice half calf americano. So as you can tell, I'm already I'm already done. It's very sad. Ooh. Nice one, mate. Nice. Oh, well, well, I do oh, start well. to make more sense as uh, the coffee starts to kick in. <laughs> I understand I'm, that. Yeah. I'm lucky. My, my flatmate is actually working from home today, and we have a coffee machine. So if you hear me yell out and say, oh. Nathan, coffee. <laughs> it's good to have coffee guy, right? Have your own personal barista. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's one of the nicest things he, he did was get a coffee machine. And, uh, when you first thing <laughs> in the morning, you, you couldn't be bothered making, you know, going through the process. You just press a button, and, it, and it's just done right. in no time. Love it. Yeah, we have the same thing, an espresso, I think it's called. That's it's pretty exactly. good. You know, it's not not like making a nice espresso on, you know, on the stovetop or whatever. But man in a pinch, like you say, you're just waking up. I just want to push a button and let's get this going. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what we got spoiled, going there. Spoiled, so, spoiled, spoiled not at as all, we are, yeah. Not at all sponsored by Nespresso. What, I no, must mention, though, okay. that the podcast is sponsored by Chicken Picks, uh, ah. ET Guitars, and summer cable so shout out to all those fine people for helping me out along the way i got some giveaways coming up over on mm. my chit chats with git cats facebook group mm. um i'm actually thinking about changing the name i just i briefly mentioned that to you off air yeah i thought it was guitar cats though no chit chats with guitar chit chats with git cats but i got that does make more sense rhythmically but at the same time yeah, you need you need guitar in there, man. I do, I do. I uh, for search engine optimization. That's purposes, optimization yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Get yeah, for any any potential Nespresso sponsorship, they're gonna want to see that too. So we just that just throwing that out nice. there, Nespresso. That would be nice. and, com Nespresso. <laughs> and great to have a co a coffee endorsement. That would be pretty. Oh, awesome. wouldn't it? Wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, tour sponsored by you know podcast well, people sponsored get by beer companies and the yeah. like and. Yeah, I'd much rather promote uh, coffee than beer. So, mm, mm. that me, me personally, you know, whatever your thing is. <laughs> so, Andy, I did warn you that um, yeah. I don't have any questions prepared. That I perfect. Yeah, yeah, I have a, a blank slate, a little whiteboard here that tells me perfect. what episode we're on and who my guest is, just in case nice. I you know, nice. get up there and go, "Hello, Cleveland," and I'm <laughs> not in right Cleveland. on. No, let's 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 float with it, man. Yeah, but oh. I did tell you that I was going to start by asking you what yeah. started the passion for the electric guitar for you, mate. Oh, I, I don't remember there not being guitar. Essentially, my, my earliest musical memories are music-based. And, uh, you know, I had an older brother that was 12 years older than I. When I was born in 1963. So kind of a good time to be born as far as, you know, rock music goes, right? Because there in 63 and 64, of course, the Beatles were just coming over, you know. Um, I guess they played Ed Sullivan in February of 64. 
So literally, my my one of my earliest musical memories is of I saw her standing there, which would have been the flip side of in the states was the flip side of I I want to hold your hand, which was the the first that was actually the first number one Beatles single. They'd released three or four others, but just without much promotion or whatever. But but I clearly remember that my favorite part of the song um, was the instrumental section. I didn't know what a guitar solo was, but that beautiful reverb dream. You know. <laughs> for note anymore but anyway I just that was my favorite part of the song and so again with my older brothers kind of buying all those records in real time all the British invasion stuff and there was acoustic guitars around the house and and by the age of I think maybe four I had my first toy or maybe three three or four my first toy plastic guitar so it was just every it was just a very guitar centric life from the from the downbeat essentially that's mainly because it was around in the household my parents had a a big old uh, console record player, and I remember them playing records all the time, and my brothers buying the all the all the British Invasion stuff. So it was all guitar-driven music, and uh, with the acoustics around, my brothers being into it, you know, that it was just that it was just that sound, you know. And to this day, that because that that George Harrison solo on I Saw Standing There, it's so reverb drenched. They would have put the reverb on from Studio Three. You know, the they'd have the the what if it was a storage basement or something with the the microphone and the and the speaker, so it is, I love a beautiful wet guitar sound. I think it's really purely from that that experience as a kid. Nice. And did your brothers uh, play at all? Yeah, all, well, I had three older brothers, and we're all four years apart. Uh, my brother Brian is four years older, John eight years older, and, and Mark twelve years older. They all dabbled a bit. So there was there was a line of acoustic guitars in the '60s called Silvertone that I believe they were in the Sears catalog. So a lot of families in the states, there was this kind of standard issue tobacco burst little acoustic guitar played horribly but so they all kind of knew a few chords maybe just cowboy you know strumming but i would see that and then when they weren't around i'd sneak in their rooms and try to remember you know what i'd seen them play you know and, and what uh, age i do that you think i mean easily at that point that we're talking five and six but even before that i, I did get the toy plastic guitar like it might have been a mickey mouse brand or yeah there was a series of them because they, they kept breaking but my mom would buy me another one from the the oh, five cool. and dime store but i remember vividly that um my brother john showed me the one string melody this is before smoke on the water folks so this is Just stepping still. We were talking about your neighbor Louis Shelton. He might have been on this record because he's on Last Train in Clarksville. So this is at the age of four or five. I'm playing this, but the, here comes the good part. <laughs> I mean, you know, pretty good for whatever age, you know. Absolutely. I haven't gotten much better, but I can still play it. You know. <laughs> uh, so, but the, but the, so, so the bug bit really early. It was just kind of clear that this that this is something that I really loved. I didn't know it's going to be my life like it turned out to be, but yeah, yeah, it was it was a very big. The music and the guitar was very important from my earliest memory. You know, cool. And did then yeah. did you go? seek formal lessons or anything like that or did you just start picking up things yourself yeah well eventually yeah i um it was all kind of self-taught and i remember my brother mark taking me to once once it was clear i was getting into the guitar and maybe i think with my first job i bought a a, a, a pawn shop guitar for twelve dollars and 95 cents you know saved up and 
and bought this little, I didn't have an amp, but I had this little solid body electric guitar. But he'd, he'd driven me to a friend of his that had an, a, a, a Gibson SG, and he knew, he knew like, you know, bar chords and, and pentatonic scale. It's like, okay. So along the way, somebody would show me these little bits, you know, and then I, um, I just kind of started learning uh, by ear from my record collection. It was initially like the Kiss Alive record. That was a big thing. You know, once I realized they were tuned down half step, that was handy to figure out. Yeah. But that, you know, once you had the, the basic power chord. You're... And Ace, Ace Freely was such a great guy to learn from because he was very simple in his approach, but it was all really great parts and very memorable solos. And very well played. Very well played. The time was great, and is uh, you know the vibrato. You know, it wasn't it wasn't complicated, but that was the beauty because I didn't have a teacher. Again, I was just getting these little bits of information and whatever I might even see on television. You know, because this is you know kids. This is way before internet and and really before instructional videos and tapes. We had Guitar Player magazine. Where you get a bit of uh, you know written out music or whatever, but it was really just anytime I could see a guitar player on television or be in front of somebody actually playing. These were the moments of like okay, so but by the time I was maybe uh, my first gig I did when I was thirteen, uh, which was my own eighth grade graduation dance, right? Cool uh, from he Hebron Grade School in Evansville, Indiana, and it was just me and and, and my my brother had a friend, you know, my the brother Brian that was four years older than I had a friend named Glenn Gore. Uh, that would have, he would have been, if I was in eighth grade, he would have been a senior in high school and he'd gotten the gig to play this eighth, this, you know, grade school graduation. It was, happened to be my school, but he needed a band. He didn't have a band. He just, you know, I've got this gig. So he, his friend played bass and, and my brother told us to look, my little brother is sounding pretty good on the guitar. You know, he's playing along with Ted Nugent records and all a kiss, you know? So that's how I, I got my first band. And so I got with this, it was a power trio gig. And uh, the bass player sang a little bit, but we're, so we're doing Kiss and Rush and Nugent and Fawcett to this eighth grade class that would have, you know, they wanted a disco. <laughs> and it was, and it was all, it was all the people that I'd gone to school with. So it was just terrifying. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. was kind of a shy kid to start with, but then here's your first gig kid in front of everybody, you know, you know, so, but it was, you know, it was beautiful at the same time. You know, I had, you know, my first gig playing in a rock band and it was off and running. So to uh, this will, uh, of course, be a long answer to your simple question, but so at that point, you know, we we started gigging. We you know started getting more and more gigs, and uh, so by the age of fifteen and just getting into sixteen, you know, the band had added members and changed members, and but we're now we're playing bars, man. We got regular, you know, playing three nights a week at the at the Red Baron Lounge at the Holiday Inn on Highway Forty One, you know. But it, so, but even by then, it's like okay, I'm realizing this is my life. I, I really have no other, you know, nothing else. I really felt any, any passion for, and so it was clear that this is what I wanted to do. But I somehow had the the vision that, you know, maybe making it making it in a band is going to be such a long shot. Just because I lived in a very small town, and it just didn't seem like even possible. It seemed like a fairy tale kind of thing. But I was reading in Guitar Player magazine about guys like Tommy Tedesco and Carlton. Louis Shelton, of course, and and uh, even uh, Steve Lukather, who I was just getting to know, getting to know about a little later, they were session guys, and so they knew how to read music and you know could play in any style. So I thought, well, 
I need to find a teacher. And so that's when, so it would have been about the age of 16 that I found a, a guy locally in Evansville. His name's Ron Pritchett. He's still there. And uh, he just started, you know, even though at 16, I'm, I'm, I'm playing well. I'm, again, playing professionally, gigging regularly. Really good, solid rock player. But he started me like, you know, lesson one of the Oahu lesson series. Notes, notes on the treble string, you know. So I could read, you know. Here's the notes. But because he could see I could play, every week he'd also write out, you know, uh, changes to like a, a you know, maybe like. He'd write out the changes to a standard, and then I would comp for him, and he'd play the melodies. Because he'd written, he'd written a, a, a very brief chord book, kind of the antithesis of the Ted Green massive chord study book, which is a beautiful book. But this is like, here's every voicing of G13 that you'll ever need to use, right? Here they are, and here's the circle of fifths and how to navigate. So here, he's basically saying, here's, here's what you're going to need, you know, here, and here's how to navigate, you know. Any voicing you're gonna need. Yep. So it was beautiful because he started loaning me records of like Joe Pass and, and Barney Kessel and and uh, big Oscar Peterson fan. So he was in, and he played in the style of, of Barney Kessel. So he's a really good jazz player. So he started really kind of broadening my uh, my musical knowledge, you know. And I loved it. It was anything with the guitar. It was like I want to know how to do that. I've heard a, a great country track or whatever, or even classical eventually, you know, just. If it's guitar, man, I love it. I want to. I want to know how to do it. So he he was a great guy to get with because he, again, teaching me the basics of reading, but then really kind of broadening my my ears. You know, yeah. stretching me. How do these guys know what notes to play? You know, I'm I'm, I'm still in the pentatonic land here. And, yeah, yeah. But it was a, a beautiful. Uh, the timing was perfect. You know. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you, yeah. you stumbled on the right guy that taught you the stuff that matters. Not just you need to know yeah. everything, but just honed in. No, and that's. And that's the thing too, and it's funny you say that because it, there's such a an overwhelming burden that a lot of players feel. And, and once I got into teaching, you know, more recently, now that I have you know my own instructional side, and I had I was doing a few private lessons, that people just kind of come in feeling overwhelmed, like oh, I need to know all the modes, and because the world of information is on their desktop or in their back pocket every day. Yep. But it, I mean, and yeah, it can be handy, and and yeah, if you want to explore that. But none of it really matters. It's it's the really basic stuff, you know. Like you say, you don't need to know everything in the Ted Green chord book. It's handy if you do, but you know, it, it can be really uh, demoralizing and kind of uh, inhibiting for some people that they just feel, well, I'll never be able to do all that. Mm. Well, you don't have to, and, I, and I'll endlessly you know bring up various blues players, or even Stevie Ray, or you know, Hendrix was certainly pushing boundaries. But at the same time, there was you know there was just really foundational things that they did exceptionally well and just better than everybody else yeah so it's not a really a, the amount of material it's just how you play and that it just really defines the player too it's the it's not the flurry of notes it's the vibrato and how it lands and what how does it feel in the process this is where you know we talked about luke at the earlier and i think why i really gravitated towards him and he really is i think my biggest influence overall there was just such a conviction and and, and complete control over note placement yeah, you know what I mean. It's like every everything was really in the spot it needed to be, and his instincts are just broader and better than anybody's. It's just it's just incredible. And he, you know, he he'd probably say he got some of that from Carlton, and I hear that because Larry's the same way, and he's another textbook of like every note and nuance is just so sweet with the guy. So yep, I know I'm some jumping the gun as far know. as get some guys just yeah, know where to place that note. There's an innate, is an innate thing, and it is it is to do with several things. I think the more you know, the more 
you know, we, we communicate, we talk about these things, we communicate about all the various things that make the, the great player that we, that we either aspire to be or that we appreciate and, and the truly great ones. But that, that's one thing I kept finding is like the, the guys I really gravitate toward just have really amazing control of time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have to, it has, doesn't have to be metronomic. It doesn't have to be a perfection thing, but it's an intention thing and, and, a, and, a, and an ability to know where that spot is. But that also led me to a, a, a way of thinking that as I reflect on my own way of being in, 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 in finding those moments in music, um, but it's the way you navigate the world too, you know, when you're in a room full of people, are you trying to make it about yourself or are you aware of everything else and, and trying to find a place that makes sense? Yeah. You know what I mean? There, yeah. And there's, and there's all the different types of musicians. Sometimes, you know, the focal point may just be all about you. Okay. Well, okay. That's all right. But the guys that are really great in the studio or in a, in a really good band situa situation, it's, it's, it's a huge, deep empathy and an awareness of, of not just what they're doing and how they're doing it, but how will it affect the overall? How, you know, I've, if I step in front of that person, well, they're going to have to move, right? Well, what if I just, if I step here, they won't have to move. Ah, that'll feel better. Yep. You know, yep. so it's really, it's kind of a life thing as well as a musical thing. And so, I don't know, that's just one of those things that it gets down to the deep into the person as well. Is it, what, what kind of person is this, you know, and how does that, how does that feel? <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And so, I, I don't you know. So, so you're talking about uh, just to jump back a, a little there. Sure. You were saying um, yeah. about playing your first gig, school dance. Yeah. I totally relate to that. That that was me, and I'm I'm thinking oh, back. Yeah. I know all the gear I had. Most of it was borrowed back then. What type of gear <laughs> were you using back then? Because I'm seeing you've got some beautiful amplifiers behind you right now, and the yeah. tone it sounds amazing that you're sending us. Uh, what were you, you using back you. then? That that was a good rig, man. It was the drummer's cousin was a guitar player and it was kind of in a big local band. So I bought his hand-me-down rig, not rig, but just he had, he had an acoustic 150 head and and two in the, the the brand name was acoustic. And uh it was a 150 watt or 100 watt um solid state head, but two 412 cabinets. And I had a like a blue uh Dallas Arbiter fuzz face running into that. And, First and it was an yeah, and it was electric. Two, two 4x12s. <laughs> two 4x12s. And, I mean, that's just, I didn't know any different. And, uh, and I had an Electra Les Paul. It was a cream colored maple neck, bolt on neck Les Paul, right? That I bought at, uh, it was called uh, ABC Music on Main Street in Evansville. Remember, I paid $300 for it, but it was like the, the first kind of real brand name guitar I'd ever had. You know, it was just a succession of all these different pawn shop guitars over the years. Right. And this one, so I, I had this job at the Lawndale Barbershop sweeping here and I saved my money and got to buy this guitar. Right. It turns out, you know, and, and a sad story, it got it, uh, a few years later, it got stolen out of the back of my car. I left it in my car uh, when I went to my job that morning and uh, I never, I never found another one like it. But it turns out those, those, those 70s Electra, they're called lawsuit guitars now. It was made at the same factory that made all the Ibanez guitars. So, so anyway, you little, came full circle. I came full circle there. So I, I did. A friend of mine was actually a, a guy named Bill Bush that uh, works with the band Garbage now. But he was on tour in Australia, and I told him about this guitar. He, Man, when I was a kid, I had this guitar. I got stolen. I've never seen another one. If you ever see, you know, a cream-colored Les Paul with a maple neck, let me know. And he found an Ibanez in in Australia, and that's when I found. Oh shit, this is identical except for the little bit of the headstock. Yep. Anyway, so I ha at least I have a, I have a replacement of of an Ibanez, but I'm still looking for that Electra. 
if anybody knows the one out there, I would love to find it. Very cool. Very that cool. hurts, man. When you're, when you're, cause I would have been 16, 17, having your, your guitar stolen, man. That was, that was a, that was a knife. Like I'd never felt before that was, but I was in this band with older guys and we had an insurance policy. I mean, what band in Indiana would have had insurance, but we did. So I ended up getting a brand new Gibson Les Paul out of the deal. So it was a definite upgrade, let's just say. But, but, uh, but yeah, I just never got over that. So now I, I, mean, I haven't left a guitar in a car ever since. It just always comes with me, no matter what, when, no matter where I am. Yep. yep. Never, never like, oh, I'll just be a minute. Uh, uh-uh, it's coming with me. <laughs> Actually, always. now that I think of it, I crossed paths with you at NAMM a couple of years ago, just quickly, huh. and I got a, a quick photo with you. And yes, you uh-huh. had the guitar on your backpack. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> sure yeah, yeah, not leaving that one in the car. It's gonna be, it's gonna be attached in some way. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So you were saying that you were playing the guitar back then that was out of the same factory as Ibanez, and you've got your own Ibanez signature model. That's right. Did you continue? When did you start playing Ibanez guitars? That didn't happen until 1991. Um, So when I got the gig with Danger Danger, this this would go to 19 about 1988, I think. That kind of came down the pipeline and that record came out in 89 but it was actually through a guy that was from this area uh in texas a guy named buddy blaze who was he was working for artist relations uh for kramer guitars at the time he was famous for having built uh dimes the explorer with the lightning bolts and the kiss guys yep. and the night swan the night swan for uh vivian campbell yep well it was through him that i got that gig with danger danger because um bruno uh, the bass player bruno Ravel was playing specter basses which was at the time part of kramer and they were they, they they were signed and the record was done but they were you know putting a search out for uh for somebody to join the band a studio guy had done the record and uh so anyway I, so that was my first big big endorsement was with kramer right at the beginning of danger danger but then you know mysteriously kramer went out of business like a couple years later um for whatever reason um bad management or something and and so, but I was in a pretty good spot because by then, you know, it, we'd been on MTV quite a bit and had, you know, at least a certain level of notoriety. So at that point, there, you know, most guitar companies want to work with artists that have some level of profile, right? So I remember very vividly going to an AM show, kind of thinking like, wow, I need to, what company would I like to be with? You know, who would I most like to be aligned with? And I was in a band that was very much a, a quote unquote hair band, you know, kind of chasing the Bon Jovi tail. But, um, you know, Ibanez was a company that had Satriani and Vi, and my friend Reb Beach was playing for them at the time, and and uh, Paul Gilbert, a variety, a variety of just great players. And Schofield had always played that AS, whatever, that 200. So, I mean, that would be a, a, a place I'd like to be. And I'd met the, the artist relations guy, a guy named Chris Kelly, a couple years before in an earthquake, in an earthquake oddly enough. Oh, really? We, there was, I, was, I was at NAMM for Kramer, and uh, I just checked into the hotel, and right after I'd got my luggage in the room and everything. And maybe I was changing clothes and there goes the building. And I hadn't experienced this kind of type of thing, you know, California earthquake. And I run out of the hallway and this is other guy in the, in a similar state of undress in the hallway. We're like, man, earthquake. And then it settles down and goes, Hey, I'm Andy. I'm Chris, you know, it just turned out to be the Irish relations guy for Ivanez. So I'd already, I already met the guy. And so when I went to him, you know, I said, man, I'm, I'm looking for a new home, you know, says well you know our, our our program is closed but i'll see what i can do and he eventually came back to me and says well we don't really like your band but we like you he, he'd heard some of my demos that became my first solo record so i was already kind of doing 
because I wanted to be, you know, on, you know, like the Satriani's and Vise. I always wanted to be that kind of yep. virtuoso instrumental guitar player. You know, we got when, when uh, Surfing with the Alien came out, you know, this is before Danger Danger. When that record came out, I was like, man, this is, this is it. This is, this is complete freedom. Guitar is, is everything. You know, you don't need a singer. Yep. Write a great song, play your ass off, you know, this makes sense, right? Yeah. But then, you know, so I, I, that's when I had formed the Andy Timmons band and we were already playing in Dallas. But then again, the opportunity arose to join this band on a major label. And I kind of thought this might be my chance, even though it wasn't necessarily exactly what I wanted to do. It was something I was very equipped to do, you know. And so and it, and it was in, in that the time that I was in that band, whether it was maybe three or four years, I mean, all the childhood fantasies are, you know, we ended up touring, opening, opening for Kiss on a couple of tours. And that was my first concert I ever saw was the Destroyer tour. Oh, cool. 1976 in Evansville. So again, in eighth grade, I'm already playing. I'm 13. I go see this. I'm like, this is it, man. This is, you know, it was, it was, it was one of those things. So to, to, you know, full, another full circle thing, just to however many years later it was, you know, 16, 17 years later, there I am, you know, opening for these guys, you know, and awesome. just awesome. pinching myself and on the side of the stage, every show I would watch them, you know, so just, just hearing Paul start out every night. <laughs> hearing these tunes that were my textbook growing up it was it was incredible man just couldn't have couldn't have ever imagined that i would even meet one of these guys much less be on the road and yeah. sharing the stage and hanging you know it was great awesome awesome <laughs> yeah. i've got a few friends that have opened for kiss over the years and uh, uh yeah they all say the same thing just dream come true they were just well it is i mean that they they there was a, it was like they weren't even real you know they had comic books and movies and stuff yeah and it's like yeah these guys even real wow we're opening for them yeah and it's one of those things especially the guys of my age you know i'm i'll be 58 in a week or so but it it was it was kind of the thing if you were the right age at that right time right when they were just kind of went alive and then destroyer and you're in your early teens it just really it meant a special thing and i think they i mean of course they still you know continue to inspire and and you know turn on new people but there was a special thing about that time and so but it was people that were a little younger and a little older didn't always get it you know what i mean sure. like the old the older people like they were too cool to like kiss yep because they were like you know that's a kid group you know but no man it was it's heavy rock man and it's really great you know and i i, I still get a kick out of uh listening to it and you know i'll go through you know i, I go through phases of my entire life for for a while like now i'm into like I'm listening to nothing but Chopin and, and, and some classical stuff, but next week it'll be Kiss or it'll be back to Beatles or, or whatever whatever path I might go down. It might be West, you know. Yep. I love uh, it all, man. I didn't really get uh, Kiss. Mm. I, I'm 10 years behind you um, okay. in age. Yeah. And so when the whole Kiss explosion happened here in Australia, I was uh, a, a kid and they were they yeah. moved on to their, their disco hits by then. Uh, yeah, okay. And it wasn't until later on in life that I'd see my friends that were into hard and heavy music. Right. They're all wearing their Kiss shirts. And then I'd, I'd hear them playing this cool stuff that would come up in their yeah. iTunes. I'm like, yeah. who's this? Oh, this is Kiss. I'm like, that doesn't sound like Paul Stanley or, or Gene Simmons. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Ace sings this one or... Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, some yeah. cool, cool songs. <laughs> I mean, his solo record was the best out of all four of them. That he just came out swinging, man. Yeah, you know. So that was me, a, yeah. that was that was a pretty sweet period for Ace, you know. Yep. So Absolutely. yeah, he he meant a lot to a lot a lot of a lot of players my age, man, for sure. Yep. 
Yeah. So Andy, you've got your signature model, which is very yeah. very strat based, but you said that you started out playing the Les Paul copy. Yeah. Well, what was the progression through, yeah. from going from a, a, a Les Paul with a bolt on neck and a, a maple fretboard <laughs> yeah. to this almost super strat style guitar? What was the, the progression? It happened in Miami. I was, um, my first two years of college, I was uh, still in Evansville, Indiana. So like I say, I started taking lessons from the local jazz guy at the age of 16. Uh, when I started college, whatever you are, 17 or 18, um, the local college offered classical guitar as a, as a major, right? So I thought, well, okay. I, I, I was looking at maybe Berkeley or Ball State in Muncie, Indiana. Um, because my and mom really wanted me to to go to college, so I thought, well, I can stay in town, be st keep keep the band I'm with, still study with Ron Pritchett, the jazz guy, but I'll I'll learn about classical. I knew nothing about classical, but I st I went started going to the library and and you know um, borrowing the you know Julian Bream and and Segovia records just to get the sound in my head. I auditioned on that Les Paul to get into the classical. I didn't own a nylon string guitar. But wow. got in. I guess they really needed students, right? Yeah. But uh, I, they could see that I could play. But I, you know, my 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 poor dear classical guitar teacher Renato Buturi, um, you know, just took me under his wing and helped helped me find a guitar. You know, my my dad helped me buy this little uh, Dauphin D A D A U P H I N. Still have it. Little nylon string guitar for three, another three hundred dollars special, which is a lot of money for a kid. But you know. Um, so I, I, I stayed with, with that program for two years, but then had the opportunity and was really hearing about the University of Miami, you know, um, where the Dixie Dregs had formed and, and Matheny had been there, which I was starting to really get into Pat Matheny and thought, well, I'd really like to go there because it's, it's electric guitar, it's jazz, forward thinking. And so I, I got in down there and very quickly got into a top 40 band, you know, uh, to gig around. And so now we're talking, you know, 83, 84. And if you didn't have a Strat, it could sound like Nile Rogers. You're not going to, it's going to be hard to find a gig. And so I went to uh, a local music shop down there. And the Fender, that was the first year that the, uh, the Squire got released. So I bought a Fender Squire Strat. Believe it or not, folks. Yep. 300, 300 bucks. I didn't realize this was such a thing, but I guess all my early good guitars were $300. Yep. If only that was still the case. Yeah. But it was a maple. It was a black, you know, I love the look of it. It's black, you know, with a black pickguard, a black pickups and a maple neck. And it's still to this day, one of my best guitars. Really? For what? I mean, and, and, the, and those are that first year of, of Squire strats are really sought after. They're actually going up in value on, on the web to the point where I went out and bought, I, I got a, a couple of extra backups just to have. But if you find a Squire that, that the serial number starts with SQ, it means it was made in Japan in 83 slash 84. And a lot of them are really, really pretty nice guitars. So, but of course, you know, I immediately put black EMGs in it because Luca there was using EMGs, right? Uh, so that's when I really started getting the feel for more of a Strat kind of thing, you know? And it just, I just kind of stuck with it over time. Um, when I was with Kramer, I don't even know, I, I, my main guitar when I, when I joined Kramer, they had just come out with the Floyd Rose sustainer guitar. Um, I'm not sure what, what model guitar it would have been. It's not really a pacer, but, but it was just, you know, a couple of humbuckers and a Floyd yep. and the sustainer unit, which worked really great. Um, but at some point I had them, I had Kramer make me a Strat and it was literally a parts guitar. It might've been either Warmoth or Chandler parts, but I wanted a guitar that looked like Eric, Eric Johnson's 54, you know, just the classic two-tone burst Strat with a maple neck. Yep. So we, they made one for me and I mean, 
a very a very uh very sad uh, attempt at at relicking you know we took the body and we're scraping it up and just look look horrible but yeah but it was that the neck on that guitar and that and that particular strat that really felt home to me so this is you know right after that kramer went out of business i started working with ibanez and they were immediately like well we want to build your ultimate guitar what is it and i but I, at that point i really hadn't i was just always kind of happy to have a guitar it was just i hadn't really found what i what i felt to be my my definitive thing so i just started they started sending me various models of there they had the usa custom which was a higher end you know 24 fret neck guitar and they were all very nice i mean they finally made one for me I wish I had it uh, nearby me here, but it was just like a, it was like the RG, but just two two humbuckers bolted right into the guitar and a Floyd, and that was that was a great guitar. But at one point, I think I sent them that Kramer Strat and said, "Man, can you make me something with this this neck?" You know, so they did a two tone burst RG body with that. It was it was like very rounded, you know. And this is well, this is it. This is the built in '94. Um, this is the prototype that I'm still playing. And it's basically it's very fendery in, in 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 feel, you know. It was very unlike most of the flat radius, you know, wider Ibanez necks, right? This is a more narrow and rounded shoulders, and no finish on it. Yeah. So it just immediately feels like a vintage guitar that just it really invites you to come play, you know. And so they made this guitar, and that was it, you know. That's just what and, I'd and found. you're still playing the '94 um, prototype. That's absolutely that's it. yeah. And I've got there's there's I, I'm 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 grooming one of the. Uh, one of the factory models, and the factory models are fantastic, because that was the thing. Once, I mean, this was a prototype, and they didn't actually make a, a model of it until '99, and that was a limited run, something like 175 guitars. And then later on in the, in the 2000s, they they reissued it, and it's, and it's still in production. But that was that was the caveat for me. It's like, well, if it's going to be my signature guitar, it has to be exactly what I'm playing. Yep. You know, I didn't want it for cost or whatever. I mean, yeah, you can have a cheaper guitar, but I. I didn't want I don't I didn't want the diston, the dishonesty that I'd grown up with with certain artists. You'd see them in these ads playing guitars like he doesn't play that guitar. There's no way, you know. Yeah. yeah. I, I said I just it has to be you know my guitar. So, so there's and they there, there's been several I've found along the way that sound better than this, but I'm just so used to it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I've got I've got one that I'm I'm, I'm starting to play a lot more because this has been refretted. Um, it's eight or nine times now. So. Oh, wow. It's it's you know it's only so much a neck can handle, yeah. So I, my my luthier keeps saying you should be playing other guitars. Well, yeah, I know. okay. We'll get no, you just it. attached to that one, you know. Yeah. At the at the time, uh, Ibanez everything was so metal looking, and they didn't really right. have much in the way that that was more or less a Strat with sharper edges on it is what you've very got much there. so uh, yeah but when you look at the lines that have come out from them in recent years <laughs> yours is very in place with what they're coming out with now isn't yeah. it it took a while to get there you know i think i think there was a trepidation on their part early on because it was too strat like and i think i think that maybe uh somewhere in the company there was pushback and and hesitancy for that but again, here we are now, and now it's the AZ line, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's it's. Be, I see no reason to to hide the fact that so much comes from Les and Leo. They just got it right so early on. Everything's kind of a permutation of that. Nothing wrong with that. But it's it's the thing, and I, and I've got a couple. It, finally, in my life, you know, for for years, I always lusted after having a great old Strat. So now I've got a really nice 1960 hardtail and a 65 um, Strat that both really sound 
quite exceptional. They're really great guitars. But I couldn't do a whole night of my music on it. I mean, they're really great for what they do, but, you know, I, I'll never know how Eric Johnson gets that lead tone out of that guitar. <laughs> that's, just, that's just a mystery. But this, this, this is what does it for me. I'm just taking the best of, of the history of the guitar and just modernizing it just, just enough to, you know, to have it where it needs to be for my voice. Because I come from the heavier rock 70s, 80s thing, but, but I want also to, the tradition and the ability to go further back. Yep. You know, and there's so much of that sound that we all love. And I've got this one pretty dialed to where I can get, you know, some pretty nice stratty. Uh... If I were to be able to play, you'd hear it. <laughs> but, you know, it's. It's it suits me it suits me well and uh, but but yeah when I pick up the old vintage guitar then this is the other level of of beauty too right nice nice and when when yeah. you came out with your signature model did yeah. you go through different tone woods are you a believer in tone woods well there wasn't any anywhere anywhere I needed to go it was an alder body with a maple neck yep I you mean, stuck to that it just it just kind of it was it was it was really right and this again this this was the prototype. Um, and that was it. I didn't really feel the need to experiment much more. It was it was different enough in that, obviously with the cruisers, which are actually humbuckers, but kind of single chord voice, the DiMarzio pickup. And then originally it had a, um, a Seymour Duncan Jeff Beck pickup, which uh, just a friend of mine had said, I like this pickup. I went, okay, I'll check it out. Yep. <laughs> you know. Yep. Uh, and the, the bridge is what kind of makes a difference on this guitar because it's a it's a beefed up version of the Fender. It's a it's a Trev Wilkinson. Uh, bridge that the Godo now uh, puts out and makes, and that's the so six screw. Yeah, yep. though I've, I've got I've got four in it, um, and all, all five strings. And um, is that is that it's, it's, set it's, flush it's against saddles? The, is it set flush against the body? You said you got five strings. It, Does it pull back? Five strings. No, well, no, I I got it just just a little bit. It. It was on the deck forever up until maybe about three, four years ago, because I would always have a separate guitar where I've had set up a bit floating. But I like the stability of having on the deck. So now, I, but I'm actually lifted it a bit, so I can get a nice, you know, nice bit of float. But it, but it's, if I were fired to pull up, just barely. Yep. Yep. Just just a little bit. So 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 I can still do a little bit of. I can get away with Trent Caparola and not have too much, uh, <laughs> too no. much struggle. Nice, nice. It <laughs> yeah. does need just that little bit of float, doesn't it? When you're using the bar to get it, the vibrato. Yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, I, I forget. I, I, I used it for years where it was just, I, I, but I'd only have the ability to, you know, lower the pitch, which you're really missing out, you know, if you want to get any kind of the vocal expression, you know. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and you said you've only got four, four screws in. Do you purposely yeah, take four out of the out six, and 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 I will admit it's just that that's the way it was sent. I just I never touched it. It's like it's working fine for me, you know. Yep. So, uh, and yeah. the the newer versions of your guitar have a roasted maple neck. Have you? Yeah, love yeah, it. Any difference in tone that you pick up on those? Um, not necessarily. I mean, it's it's a lot of these things are hard for me to to define because every piece of wood's going to sound different anyway. Yep. You know, um, the, the the initial models have stainless steel frets in it. I think I'm going to go back to regular frets, though. I've decided I'd rather use the my standard fret in it. Um, 
but I love the feel. I love the feel of it quite a bit, and they do sound great. You know? Nice. And what type of fretboard radius you got going on there? I think it's a. Because th- <laughs> it, world's foremost authority on his own signature guitar. I think it's an eleven, maybe a twelve, but. I don't know. But, I, but that being said, I mean, I really enjoy the old seven and a half too, you know, so there may be some experimentation at some point. Yep. Yeah. Just to see, to see what we can do. Yeah. And, and are you an avid collector of, of guitars in general? Do you have a whole, whole bunch stashed away? Are you like, nah, this one covers most spaces for me? It's, it's funny because, but the, the answer is yes. Um, I've got, I've got more than, than I need. And it's been, it's, it is kind of a hobby as well as the profession, you know, and I'm not, I'm not like the guy that's, out really avidly hunting down and collecting but over the course of my life you know there's certain guitars that just were just boy i would love to be able to someday have this guitar yeah. and a lot of them have kind of come you know into my uh into my orbit and in various crazy ways like you know finally finding a great telly which happened about maybe i don't know 20 years ago it literally it was at a, at a blues gig i used to do in dallas at a, a club called the blue cat blues at a band called the pawn kings we played every every wednesday night whenever i was in town wednesday night we we're going to be at this club and there's this guy that comes up to me one night and says hey i've got this you know guitar in my car i want to play it you know like this this happens the case here, here check out my guitar yeah well his friend had, his friend had passed away and he was helping the family sell some of his guitars and it was a 68 maple neck telly and he brought it in and says, oh, yes, I would like to play that guitar. You know? So I took it on stage. And the pickup was microphonic and the strings were kind of flapping on the neck. But um, I arranged to meet the guy the next day at my, at Luth- my luthier's shop and let's check it out. And if, it's, it, you know, if, it, if I can get this tweaked out, then I'd be very interested. And it just, it's my, the guitar I record with more than anything. If I go to a session, it's going to be this guitar, that 68 Tally, and maybe an old Strat. I know I've got everything that I need. So those kind of guitars, and like I say, the the, the couple old Strats that I that I acquired very much later, because of course they they're they're uh, they're expensive. <laughs> you know, some of these vintage guitars, and not all vintage guitars are great. You know, you, yeah. but once you find one, and that and that was the story with the '60 Hardtail. We we were doing a tune um, for the last record called "On Your Way, Sweet Soul." It's just a real pretty. ballad where the tone was and that's a nice tone but we would you know my myself and my bass player mike dane who was engineering and, and producing the record with me we need a vintage strat we got you know so we literally had 20 strats in the studio one day so i've got you know, I've got a couple, uh, I didn't have the 60 at that point, but I had a couple of things, some, some much later strats, the several Squire strats. And I had other, other friends bringing their guitars. And so we had 20 strats and we're like, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. And the same luthier that I was telling you about this, uh, Sam Swank, that, uh, who's a great player as well. Um, it's, he, he randomly called, he didn't know we were on the strat search. He says, Hey, this client of mine just brought in this old strat. You need to check it out. I'm like, oh, great. And so he brings it over. It's the 60 hardtail. And we plug it in and play it. And we went, oh, my God, that's the sound, right? Cool. And it turns out it was a guy, it was a, a client of his that had a, a quite a large collection, right? And, and so, you know, Sam said, oh, he, he, he's fine with you. You can borrow it. Just, you know, pl- you know, record the track. He's totally cool with that. 
And, but as this is going on, I'm like, you know, I can't let this go. <laughs> so I call him, is there any, do you think he would, do you think he would sell it? Would he part with it? And the guy was like, yeah, you know, if, he, if Andy feels that strongly about it. So, but here comes the problem. It was, you know, it wasn't a cheap instrument, right? And uh, the price he was asking was very fair, but I, I just didn't have in, in, like that kind of money, right? So, but I had a guitar I knew I could sell that I knew I had a buyer for that had been asking, he wanted to buy this old Kramer that I'd used in Danger Danger, right? And I thought, man, I, I hate to get rid of this guitar, but I recognize that I may never find a Strat that, that I feel sounds that great again, you know? So I was just, I was getting ready to sell this guitar that I didn't want to sell. It was, a, it was this hollow flash finish Kramer that was in the Danger Danger videos. Yep. So this guy was a big fan and he had, he had some money. He's like, okay, I want to buy this guitar. So he kept pestering me about, it. I thought maybe I'll just, maybe I'll, I'll let it go because I'll, I'll that the guitar sentimental, but I'm not going to play it. Like I'm going to play this old strat. Yep. So right at that moment, there was a royalty check that, it, that it, I received that I wasn't expecting. And I didn't know that I was even owed anything. And it was the exact amount of the guitar. <laughs> that's just, a fight. No, that's it not was fight. No, I, and, and, I, and again, I don't bring that up to be, to brag or, or I hope you're receiving this with how I'm telling you, but it was kind of a divine intervention thing. Like it was like, no, you keep the old Kramer and okay, we're going to, we're going to help you get this, you know, this guitar. And, and, and still to this day, I mean, I, I, I use it on recordings. I love to play it and, you know, uh, so it was just, just what a gracious thing that the guy was even willing to sell it. And then somehow again, some money showed up. That, that which happens it's every now and then something will show up like oh wow that's that's nice i didn't know i had that coming or whatever and it doesn't it doesn't happen like that that often trust me but it was just one of those moments where you know well maybe i can justify spending this money right yeah so i was very very honored and uh yeah i feel very feel very fortunate so other 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 guitars along the way you were kind of asking about like you know have an old rickenbacker 12 string you know being a beatles guy right so i've got an old rickenbacker and uh a Gretsch, you know, 62 Tennessee and then the J160E. And I've got a beautiful uh, 63 Texan, which is the the guitar that uh, McCartney played on yesterday. Nice. Know? Just great recording acoustic, just beautiful, smooth, and a very even tone. Yep. Not a, not a great for lead work, but for just the good strumming, beatly stuff, it's just just perfect, you know. So is it a case, then, is it a case yeah, of you, you see guitars around that you go, man, that, that's just a classic that has such a – identifiable yeah. sound you know like a rickenbacker or a telecaster yeah are you searching for nice examples of each ones of those or is it just well, something grabs your eye and you go oh i must have that no it's 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 very much you know th there's there's an awareness of like stuff that oh that would be nice because for sessions or just inspiration you know yep uh that so th and that's and so that's specifically why those guitars were appealing to me and when i was able to find you know, a specimen that sounded good, then I would do whatever I could, horse trade or whatever. And there's also, there's a lot of guitars I have, just all the, the variety of, uh, you know, prototypes and, and samples from different companies that I've, that I've worked with. So they're, and being a bit of a pack rat, but I've gotten rid of some things along the way, you know, like you say, to, to accommodate other, other needs in, in the guitar, in the guitar arsenal, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just for future reference, somebody did say in the chat, I just saw it go past, that your current signature model has a 12-inch radius. Thank you. I told you I might not know, but yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, I, did, I, did, I did guess. Okay, thank you. Thank you, histori historian of Andy's guitars. <laughs> it's probably on the website anyway. Probably yeah, is. 
probably is. Now, yeah, you said yeah. when you were getting uh, lessons from Ron that um, – uh, no, you didn't say that. You, you said you got lessons from Ron. It helped you yeah. learn the stuff that, that mattered. But you yeah. also mentioned the word intention before about guys playing mm. with intention. And mm. to me, I, I did see some True Fire videos of yours a few years back. And ah. um, it, you've got that whole thing down of just playing mm. the, the right notes. The the. <laughs> And I think that comes down to playing around the chord more than just, oh, we're in D minor, I'm going to play a D minor pentatonic. There's yeah. certain guys that just have their head around playing around the chords. Mm. And that just yeah. lends its way to such beautiful melodies. I mean, yeah. people immediately think jazz, but no, I'm thinking Dave Gilmore. You know, like when you listen to his solos, yeah, it's, it's basically the notes of the chord and he's just passing through everything else to get there. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing you learned from Ron? Um, not, not directly, but I think, I think that started me on the path. Yep. And like I was saying, I, I literally remember saying to him, how do these guys know what notes to play? And he said, well, just learn the arpeggios, which I, I quickly did not do. <laughs> it's like, it made total sense. It's like, if you want to learn, well, if you just, didn't do any of that but over the years i did do it because because eventually you know the the navigation uh, of a two five if you're in the key of d major and you play it e minor seven a seven to d major seven it's the thirds and the sevens right and there you've got you hear the harmony So I think it was through the music I was beginning to listen to a lot more and I did absorb a lot of jazz from the classic players like Barney and Joe and Wes, but then progressing, you know, to the, you know, um, kind of the Metheny and, and eventually Mike Stern and to, to, to a degree Lukather, but Carlton, even on a, on a, on a higher level um, of that type of awareness, like you say, yeah, you can... We're all gonna you do that, or you're gonna. You know, there can be great melodies, you know, and and that that is totally the the I, I don't want to call it a game, but it, it it is a bit of that. It's like, yeah, I can be aware of the global scale of whatever's happening, but it's really more about what what chord is happening at that time. And how and how can I uh, allude to that in a melodic way? That's going to give the listener an, a, the essence of the harmony, whether they hear the backing or not. Mm -hmm. You know, and that and, and to me, that's just such great melody can come from that. So yeah. to accomplish that, when Rod said Ron said to learn your arpeggios, is yeah. that how you view the fretboard? I know everybody views it completely different. Is there a certain yeah. method? Are you a caged guy? Are you a three note per string guy? Are you all of the above? How do you think yeah. fretboard? Yeah, it's interesting. I I wasn't any of that until Miami. And then, you know, there was just, there was awareness of of positions, you know, and it all kind of seemed to evolve, revolve around the pentatonics and the, the basic areas you might be comfortable But invariably, there'd be a lot of blind spots where you maybe weren't as comfortable you know, you could, you've, you've worn a nice groove here, you've worn a nice groove here, then up, 
up the octave. But when I got to Miami, it was the first uh, organizational way of learning I'd ever been presented with, and that was going through the modes. And, and they were like a three note per string. But even though it was supposed to be like, well, this is Dorian, this is Phrygian. I always simplified it just thought, well, this is all, this is all F major, right? Yeah. So what it immediately did for me was once I, you know, cause it, you, part of the curriculum is like, well, you need to have this wired, you know, in all 12 keys and, and the, uh, and all the different, uh, I guess, you know, harmonic, we've done melodic minor and harmonic minor and all that, but it just kind of took away the blind spot. So if I just think about a key, I can in instantly kind of see the majority. So there's a bit of that going on. There's that having done the work of knowing where the notes are. But I also realized because I was such a visual, uh, you know, orientated player, I oriented player, you know, I, I'm, I'm also seeing the chords as I go by as well. Cause there's, yeah. there's a lot of information. We've got a major. Well, you know, you know where to go for the third. You know what? So you're gonna start seeing all those different inversions of the chords. Not seeing scales at all because yeah, that's right. again, because I know, you know, everything that I want to create melodically is well, is it is it a chord tone or isn't it? You know, and if it's not a chord tone, where does it want to go? You know, so it's tension and release, right? So if you got this A7 chord and you play a big O, well, it's a D. It's beautiful, but boy, it's gonna have to go. I mean, it's gonna go somewhere. Could go. Well, where'd I go there? So, once you put it all together, of course you've got a scale, but it means something completely different when you're thinking about it that way. And if you're thinking scales and patterns, it can be a great sound, but it, to me, it's gotta. You need to mix that up a bit, right? So I was getting the scalar things together, but I, I realized that the players that I was listening to didn't sound like they were necessarily playing scales. Maybe some of the shredders were sounding a bit more scalar. And again, there's a, there's a very, you know, valid energy to that. And I love it too. Right. But the ones that were connecting with me that they, they had that bit of jazz background to where that navigation was happening. Robin Ford, you know, does it all day long. You know, he yep. had a really, and has this beautiful blues authenticity, but there's there's more behind it. You know, there's this really very much intentional voice leading going on. And that's what it is. It's, it's, it's all voice leading, you know. Well, if this note, then this note, you yep. know. It's, there's, there's, there's kind of a, a logical progression that, yep. that, can, that can happen, you know. But at the end of the day, I guess uh, a lot of listening involved, huh? And just letting you well, ear take you always, there as well. I mean, well, that's that's the thing is it's that's how we develop. You know, I, I in one of my courses called melodic muse. I call it our auralect. It was a term I I made up just because I hadn't seen anything that really addressed what I was thinking of when they asked me to do a course on melody. So, well, how am I going to explain something that I've kind of developed naturally? You know, where does this melodic sense come from? But it's it's it is definable in that it's you know it, we can intellectually you know make a melody right just as we're talking if we've got a d minor a minor to b flat i know if i just play the third of those chords it's going to sound nice because that's the third of each chord it's going to sound sweet and that's not a bad melody but 
so but what's what's the the intellect of the ear like it, so i called it the oralect and and my what i mean by that is is that all the all the things that we learn that we take in through our ears and that we we internalize and we we learn it and i think i, I think when we're trying to create our own melodies or write our own songs it's it's invariably being influenced by the things that we've heard and so when when i see when i see paul mccartney sitting at a piano and whistling something you know it's happening very naturally but it's really he's just got this huge library of stuff that they those guys you know talking about, talk about john and paul they they were so great song at songwriting because they had learned so many songs you know they had this arsenal of ideas that and sometimes they unintentionally nip directly from but but not always you know it was just this you know awareness of oh i this is what i'd like to hear because of what i've loved in the past you know and, and i love talking about david bowie how he he called himself a collector right he, he didn't consider himself that original but he was just it was just what he was putting together he was collecting these these things that he loved and then it's going to come out as you and that's exactly what i think we all do the more the longer that we do this on the guitar or whatever your instrument or passion is you know eventually because I loved Ace Frehley, but then I was into, you know, Pat Metheny. Well, what's what's going to come of that? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, how does how does that reconcile itself? Well, I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm part of that. Yep. It's it's so it's, you know, if, if all you do is listen to Stevie Ray, you want to play like that? Well, you may be a version of that, you know, but it you'd be better served doing what he did, which was he looked he listened to Albert King and Hendrix and Lonnie Mack, you know, and yeah. Freddie King. Yeah. You know, he took, he took the, but the, to blend Hendrix with some of this stuff, it was just brilliant. And yeah. Yeah. So the variety for me, you know, certainly how, how, why ever, yeah, why ever, or however I play it's, 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 it's that. And it's like that for everybody, you know, that's, I'm not original in that way, but uh, so it's, it's, it's that collection of the melodies that you've heard that you've dug and that maybe you're going to try to create something that's similar to that or of that level. You, you may never get there and what in my mind i never do but that's what's driving it you know that's what's that's giving me the giving me the goals anyway you know yep yep i think yeah. um having some very varying influences yeah. way out there ones is the way to develop a, a new sound like so sure. i as much as i'm a guitar player i, I do love electronic music and oh, i can nice. remember okay. Great. just um hearing Skrillex about 10 years ago for the first time and just going, okay. wow, that is just like nothing I've ever heard before. And then looking at the guy yeah. and go, yeah, well, my parents listened to, uh, and he just had all these really way out there influences and rolled yeah. them into this sound that was just completely unique. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that that's the key in it. Just take, take a whole bunch of stuff, put it together, be a collector as, as you said, yeah. Bowie said. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And so that's it. That's it. And, and the more authentic you are about what you're really passionate about, not what you think you should be, you know, that, that, that it could be, a, you know, at least at least back in the, the days when I in the danger, danger days where there was a lot of that, you know, chasing of whatever the trend was, of what's popular or what's going to what's going to sell. I don't know. There, there's no long term in that. There's you just you're not going to be happy. You know, you yeah. just got to got to do what you're really driven to do, you know, in the most authentic way. And then you know, chances are, you know, you'll find your way in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm 
I, I do see that we're starting to, to get some questions building up in the yeah, chat room. Absolutely. Um, and from various people. Brett Garset, of all people, is dropping questions in there. Do you know Hey, Brett? Mr. Yeah. Brett. Who's this a legend, <laughs> I man? see you, Brett. I, I see you. Uh, but just, I'll, just I will let, come let back to I'm, I'm, re I'm ready for my lessons, Brett. All right? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's asking about how you do stuff. So it's, oh, uh, it's funny how, how it all works. You know, the, the Mutual yeah. Respect Club. Uh, he's amazing. But uh, I want to ask you about some of the gear you're playing through because you, you're sure. feeding a really nice sound to me. And I'm just looking Thank at you. behind there. I can see you've got a Mesa and a Vox. Uh, what is yeah. your signal chain right now? The main signal chain is actually this. Uh, there's a, a Lone Star head behind me. And that's, so that's, I'm just running into the clean channel of that. And then the 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 timeline delay is splitting in the stereo. So unfortunately, I don't think you have stereo out there. No, but I don't. I'm, I'm, sla I'm slaving into the, the other Mesa boogie here. So it's basically a couple of clean uh, Mesa amps. And then I've just got a variety of pedals in front of all that, right? So the sound you're hearing now is, uh, I have a signature Carl Martin uh, compressor that is essentially really a clean boost more than a compressor for me because I've got the compression is all the way off and I've got the 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 the, the level on it, the volume considerably hot. So yeah. right now, if I take off the compressor. So I'm really hitting the front end, front end of the amp pretty hard. And in front of in front of the Carl Martin, I've got a um, an exotic RC boost, which uh, here's here's the uh, here's just the compressor without the RC boost. So just straight up clean. But if I turn on the RC, I'm using it to carve out a bit of the low end because the Lone Star is a pretty bass heavy amp. So I'm carving out some of the low end and adding a little treble just to get a little bit of. So you can get that if I want to pick up underneath the string, I can get a nice bite. And so, so after that, it's like a series of pedals trying to get the same sound, but they're all just slight different varying degrees. So now I'm going to turn on a channel that's got uh, a Keeley modded blues driver boss. So not too different, but here's the Carl Martin and the, and the RC. But now here's the blues driver. Adding a little bit more game, but then I've got an MXR uh, six band EQ carving a little of the low end out because the blues driver is kind of a, a bass heavy pedal. It's good for chords, but I'm backed off the volume. And that's how I use it a lot is um, um, if I, if I'm full on, but when I back off my volume knob, there's the sound. It's kind of like you're into a Marshall and you're kind of backing down the volume. That's kind of what I'm going for. I've got a lovely old uh, JMP master volume, but this is just an, an easier way to, to get the sound without lugging the Marshall around. Um, I just got a, a JHS Morning Glory, which I had never, I knew that was their most popular pedal, but I'd never heard it. Okay. And then when I was looking, then when I was looking for one, I couldn't find one because they were all sold out, but I finally got one. <laughs> 
again, similar tone, but I it's just a different flavor. <laughs> Here's, a, here's the uh, exotic BB preamp. My, my used to be a signature pedal. So in the in the in the in the scope of a performance, I'll go to whichever one is just the right feel for the for the moment. Um, and then here is my my main lead sound. Is just I have a signature JHS pedal called the AT. It's the at sign, you know. So here's the amp. <laughs> nice. It's like I, I can I, I know that if I have just that pedal and my delay, I can walk in and plug in anything. Of course, I love my Lone Star, and that's that's what I've got all this gear towards. But I really I love that pedal a lot. <laughs> use a lot of chorus but i have a a, a friend at uh, simon fraser clark that's uh with, with a laney company who i used to endorse their amps years ago he's uh he's made a lovely chorus pedal called the spiral array uh the company's called the black country customs and it's, it's basically like the old ce1 the um very nice uh, vintage analog Much it the uh, I can't turn it off. Um, I'm using a dual delay on the timeline, which is basically emulating. I used to use two old uh, Electro Harmonics Memory Man uh, analog echoes yeah. feeding each other, so we would get the 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 dual delay with some nice modulation. So I've been using the timeline to get an approximation of that sound, which is I guess all of it's emulating the old EP3 tape echoes. But I'm actually working on a signature delay that I can't quite divulge yet. But uh, we're, we're nailing it. So there's going to be, there's, I'm going to have my own signature delay coming out later this right. year. Right, right. But uh, that's a big part of my sound. And somebody pointed out to me, it was a nice way of putting it, is that, well, Andy doesn't really use delay as an effect. It's just part of his sound, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of made sense to me because I rarely turn it off. It's just kind of, it's the, this, you know, it's like to kind of swim in that, in that sound, right? So it's just delay. You don't, not, don't have a reverb after that? That's the crazy thing. No, this if you if you get things just right, it just kind of creates a reverb in the way that the the echo trails blend together. Yep, yep. And so that's you know, there's no reverb. I have a big sky on my board, but I, I just haven't used it that much. Sure. I've always kind of, I've always kind of used delay as my reverb. Yeah. I don't get specific. You know, of course, so many units now have tap tempo, and that can be handy for certain types of parts. But I tend to let it just kind of be its own thing. Because I don't really want the repeats to be so recognizable rhythmically. Yep. I just want that that ambience, and I call it the halo around the note. Yeah, I want that just. You know, and melodically, it just it, it gives you sustain to be able to hold on to a note. And let that let that be enough where you might be tempted to play more notes if you had a drier sound, right? So, yeah, yeah. And, and so the only 
every parameter on that timeline is is uh, assignable to an expression pedal, but I only use I use the expression pedal only for the echo, you know. So I can just dial in just the right amount, which again is usually too much. <laughs> but in, in the context of a track, though, it could just be this beautiful space that's kind of happening, you know. Yep. Nice. And, and if and again, if it's not if it's if it's dialed in just right, it's not it's never in the way. It's just this enhancing thing, you know. Yep. Yep. So do you have a, a smaller modeler based rig that you take if you need to do a fly gig or just a small show or do you, is this what you play through all the time? It's kind of what I play through all the time. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I have the fantasy of coming up with a, a pedal board. That's just like, like three or four must haves, you know, but I just yep. haven't gotten around to it yet. Yep. So yeah. And I curse myself every time I lug this heavy pedal board, you know, for the local gig or whatever, but yeah. Yeah, sometimes you got to have your stuff. Yep. So one thing I'm noticing, Andy, is every sound example you've given us so far, you've been using uh, neckle middle pickups. Um, except except for the, the hotter lead sound. And that's when I go to the... But you are, you are correct, sir. So, uh, and you've got the, the rail style pickup there. Mm -hmm. uh, was that a choice made purely on needing a quiet uh, guitar or is that those pickups the particular sound that does it for you or how did you arrive at those this is again going back to like this is just kind of how the guitar was put together the guy at the time uh i was working with uh bill comiskey uh, who later went to fender uh as we were kind of talking about this guitar the first prototype i said well i know i want to I want to put a, the Jeff Beck in the bridge. And he says, oh, you need to try this cruiser pickup they just came out with. Try, just check that out. Oh, great. All right. Whatever. <laughs> you know, just, and it, it matched so well with the humbucker because it is a humbucker that, you know, sometimes having the, the, the straight single coil and then a, a humbucker be hard to really match going back and forth between the two. Yep. It just worked. It was just one of those things like, all right, that's fine. <laughs> let's let's carry let's carry on again yeah. i love the traditional strat style pickup and when you have the right one and the right guitar you know you can't touch it but yeah the the noise factor being eliminated is one thing but then i just kind of my sound kind of developed around it it was one of those things where when the right guitar was in my lap then okay then things just started to to navigate a certain way and now it's it's very much my sound, you know. Yep. It's just, again, it just happened. It just kind of happened. It didn't, wasn't like this. Oh, I tried a thousand things. You know, I, I was never that guy of like, I'm gonna gonna wire twenty pickups in my guitar today, guys. Like, no, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna use what I have and just try to play some music. You know, it was, yep. it was always more about that. You know, for yep. better for better or worse. But uh, it's just kind of that's the honest answer. <laughs> just, sure, sure. You know. Well. To my ears, listening to it just through the laptop speakers, and yeah. it, it's got that. I, I love it, a neck and middle single coil, or or stacked humbucker mm. it is, or side by side, like you've got. Yeah, uh, just yeah. that that bloom around the note, the ball that, mm -hmm. that sort of happens. Yeah. So I'm hearing that, yeah. but it also sounds a little bit stronger in the mid range than. Um, well, that's just it's going to be a little less scooped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, mm -hmm. it's a beautiful sound. You know, I had. Oh, thank you. Ooh, an Ibanez that I thrown a whole bunch of things into years ago and yeah. stacked Seymour Duncan in the, the neck position. Ah. And that the hot rail? No, no, the hot Different. rails are side by side. This was Oh, I see. Okay. Stacked one. So you, you only just saw one pole, but it was actually two pickups on top of each other. And 
that was amazing. People would always comment on just the single coil sound I'd get out of that. But oh, no, nice. okay. I sold that guitar on the cheap and should have taken the pickup <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, somebody was saying that Eric Johnson had a DiMarzio stacked single coil in, in his old strap, but one of the coils was disconnected. Yeah, right. You know, I don't know if that's if he has still done that. Or that might just be, uh, you know, EJ lore at this point. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, a, uh, had Scott Henderson on a week or two ago, and he was just talking about all different methods that people have tried of having dummy coils and everything in there. Yeah, right, just right. Yeah. Wasn't the same, and he uses the, the Sir silent single coil system. Okay. Um, yeah. To try and get keep those traditional sounds. And yeah, yeah, I haven't had any luck with any of those. So I've got Kinman in one of my workhorse guitars. Nice. I know it doesn't sound like a, a traditional single coil, but yeah, it's got no noise and it's a very versatile guitar. So, well, that's just it. I mean, again, at the end of the day, we just got to find what you can really get the job done with. But unquestionably, like I say, I, I you know, all day long, I'll go back to that vintage guitar and yeah, it's going to be noisy, but man, if I've got a specific track to do or whatever, and it's just going to add, you know, this extra layer of beauty, then of course I want to use that if I can, you know? But I can never and, tour with it. There's no way. Andy, I'm going to start going back through some of the questions. So, folks, sure, sure, uh, now's a good time to start dropping some questions. Uh, I try not to keep too much of a attention on the chat room as my guest is talking because... Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I, I, I don't have the feed up, so I can't see who's here. So, hello to you. <laughs> uh, okay, so let me see. I'm not going to read out every shout out because there's going to be plenty of those. Uh... Somebody Unless was saying if, it's Paul, if, if Paul McCartney's here, please let me know. <laughs> you never know. He might drop in. Right? You never know. You never know. <laughs> uh, Boy speaking of again. McCartney, did Andy finish watching all the awesome stories from the 321 McCartney Hulu show? I don't know what that is. I've just watched, I've, I've watched four of the six, so I'm almost there. Then maybe that's a friend of mine that wants to talk about it, and I've said, I can't talk about it until I've watched all of them. I don't want any spoilers. But it's fabulous. If anybody, if anybody is uh, interested in anything, McCartney or Beatles, it's this wonderful uh, series with uh, Rick Rubin, basically just hanging with Paul McCartney, oh, cool. with multi -tra multi track to everything, and just, he's randomly just pulling up songs and getting memories from Paul. And Paul's now he's pushing eighty, you know. Yeah. But he's uh, he's he's sprightly and 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 of course I've seen every interview and every snippet and every I've been a lifelong Beatle fanatic. But there's still little moments that that come out, you know, that that he that he talks about, like, oh, I haven't heard him say that before. That's new, you know. He, just a memory of he, you know, Rick Rubin pulls up the playback of here, there, and everywhere. And there's these very, it's very, you know, simple, but it's these, ooh, you know, the, these beautiful layered harmonies. And he and, and he was like, and Paul was like, oh, George, you know, George Martin, he would. He'd sometimes go to the piano and he'd show us all the parts. We just had to try to remember them. <laughs> I always had this this thing about, well, I, I figured it was just John and Paul and George kind of figuring out what they were going to do. Yep. But there was another level I'd never heard any of the Beatles discuss. Of course, all the orchestration, all the strings, the uh, the octet arrangement on on Eleanor Rigby, or of course, Yesterday, I and the Walrus, legendary orchestrations that he would have done. But the vocal stuff I hadn't even thought of or considered, but apparently that he had a hand in that as well. Wow. So... It's it's revelatory when you hear these little just one little nugget of information that like oh wow like on the on the Scorsese you know uh, living in the material world George Harrison documentary George's I mean Paul's talking about George and 
He's talking about, and I love her. So, and he says, but George says, it needs a riff. He'd never given credit to George or mentioned that ever until, yeah, right. you know, 15 years after George's death. But yeah. Fuck. There it is. Yep. Oh, it's just. And it just makes it. And it just makes, and of course, then he, in, in the three, two, one, he mentions it again. So it's just nice that if it's even just the littlest nugget could just go, oh, it's so great to hear, you know? Yeah. Because it has been, it's been, literally been my life, you know, security blanket, this, this body of work that it's, it's hard to imagine how life would have been different, you know, without yeah. these guys. Absolutely. It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. So have yes, seen, yes to that question. Have yeah. you seen that movie, uh, is it called Yesterday, where there's like something happens and all trace oh, yes. of the Beatles gets wiped out. That's ex and so this guy, but he remembers all the Beatles songs, so yeah. they think he wrote them. Yeah, when he makes when he does the, <laughs> he does the um, he does that songwriting competition with is it Ed Sheeran. That, yeah, that, yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant scene. But yeah, yeah that absolutely. was a really well done movie. I gotta yeah, say, yeah, I went I went in hesitantly, but I really enjoyed that. I thought yeah. it was well done. Yeah, cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back to the questions here. Yes. Uh, I'm going to ask one and I'm going to take off for 30 seconds and come back. Uh, Craig Greenfield, also known as Skits, wants to know uh, what was the, the biggest ever gig you did in memory? Biggest gig? Now, I wonder, do you mean size of the crowd? <laughs> um, I, that, I haven't done that many huge gigs. There were some arena gigs uh, when uh, Danger Danger toured with Kiss. So that would have been in 1990. We did some gigs on the Hot in the Shade tour. Um, and in 92, we did some UK gigs with them um, on the Revenge tour. So th those were likely the largest crowds I played for. Um, there was one open air gig we did. It was... Uh, the Andy Timmons band and Tommy Emanuel and Deep Purple. It was a big, they call it a blues festival, right? But that, that was a memorable gig. Only that, you know, of course, just getting to see uh, Deep Purple with, with Steve Morse as, as their guitar player, of course. And I had to follow Tommy Emanuel. And I've got a power trio. And I, I, had, I was horrified because Tommy's just this force of nature, you know, just this incredible, he's like easily, you know, may be the best musician I've ever, I've ever seen. Just not just talking about the physicality of the, what's happening on the guitar, but um, just a really amazing, you know, musical uh, force to be reckoned with. And so he does just this incredible set. And then my band goes out and it's, it's actually the first gig on the tour. My, my drummer's Robert F. Sherry, it was his first gig. And so it's a, it's a fairly large crowd. And, um, at one point, you know, we go into, we, we were doing our arrangement of Strawberry Fields at that point. Well, I look, I look to my right and there's Tommy Emanuel has come down to sit on the side of the stage. You know, and he's just over there, he's rocking out. And I look behind my bass player's amp and there's Steve Morse kneeling down next to the drummer. So I got Steve Morse and Tommy Emanuel watching me play this 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 Beatles tune. And I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going, you know, there's a deli tray and some beers backstage. You guys could go. But it's one of those humbling moments of like, oh man, I better I better play good, right? You know, this is 
Um, I mean, so there's there's been so many gigs that, that that have been a big of importance because of whatever reasons like that, where you're maybe playing with with or uh, in front of some of your heroes. But uh, those would have been some of the larger crowds, I suppose. I have yeah. a bit of a Tommy Emmanuel story myself. Oh, yeah. Uh, I won the under 18 section of a best guitarist on the Gold Coast competition here in my, nice. my hometown. And uh, a few months later, there was a, a jazz and blues festival in town and Tommy Emmanuel was playing there. And oh, I got a phone boy. call at work that I had to go and have a photo shoot with him. And wow. Was, cool. And I'm, yeah, what, what, what year was this? What year was this? Nine, I won the competition in nine, 1990. Okay. Uh, and then... I got the call I was working, so 91 that I got the call to go. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, wow. back then, you know, Tom was, was really well known in Australia back then and not really overseas. It he, wasn't no, he wasn't. He hadn't overseas. come over yet. Mm -hmm. I first started hearing about Tommy Emmanuel from um, the John Farnham band. Yeah, my right. first. Well, after you tell your story, I'll, I'll tell you my, yeah. my bit about yeah. learning about Tom. Well, not much to the story. I go have yeah. a photo shoot with, with Tom. He opens up his case and I'm like looking at his guitar and he goes, oh, do you want to have a play? And I've, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm just a rock guitar player, man. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I just looked at him and said, yeah, no, well, what are you going to play in front of Tommy Emmanuel? <laughs> uh, valid, valid feeling, man. No, I, I was, um, the first tour I did with Olivia Newton-John um, was the, basically the, the John Farnham band coming over to the States. And, and it was actually Brett, believe it or not, we were just talking about, hello, Brett. Brett had another gig and couldn't do the tour because he was also in Farnham's band at the time. Yep. Um, so management just put feelers out in the States. Hey, who knows a guitar player? And Simon Phillips with Toto knew me because I was, I'd worked with Simon a bunch. Well, he put my name in the hat and they called me and I got the gig. And, uh, but they were telling me, Oh, have you heard this guy, Tommy Emmanuel? Oh, you've not seen anything like him, mate. Which sometimes as a guitar player, you're going great. Another one, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, how, how bad do I suck now? But, but then when I finally did see him play, he, he, he'd come to, to a theater in Fort Worth or just next town over. And, uh, it, it's, I just, it was just so clear. This is just one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And it was the thing that if you were to focus on the technical ability of what was happening, you'd go, Oh my God, that's impossible. And that's so great. But if you weren't paying attention to that, it, the, the music was never lost. It was never in service of, Oh, I've got chops. It was always about, this is amazing music. You know, and it just, and his time is just so ridiculous and everything felt just phenomenal, you know, and I yeah. got to know him a bit over the years too. You know, we've done some things together. There was one music camp, not a camp, but a festival we did in Suave, Italy. It was John Jorgensen and my band and, and Tommy. So we're getting to spend some time with the guy and just what a beautiful soul and just loving, loving the death, man. Nice. Really nice. great guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you just alluded to then to, um, you know, oh, geez, another guy, you know, how, how much do I suck kind hmm. of thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, don't look at the internet, whatever you do. <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah, I, yeah. when I ducked off then, you know, I really wanted to hear the start of that answer. And it's like, oh, I missed that. Uh, and don't uh, make me go back and watch myself. No, no. Oh, no, you know, no, no, no. Um, yeah. So I don't watch these. The only reason I can do these is that I don't watch them. But when it comes to hearing myself play guitar, man, I'm just sick of me playing guitar. Uh, it yeah. all just sounds the same. And I've started right. to realize talking to other players that right. most good players are the same. That, you know, that yeah. I well, seriously it's... have a, an imposter syndrome thing going on, but yeah. other people seem to enjoy 
the way I play, but it all sounds the same. So if I hear somebody right. else, like Tommy Emmanuel, who plays a completely different style to me, I'm just right. in awe. Just like, well, of course, yeah. Whoa, what is that? Right. But I think I think it's I mean it's so important to be you know it's it's a it's a delicate balance from being inspired and discouraged, right? You know you don't you know there there because there is so much greatness out there you know but there's the ability to to learn from it to be inspired by it but there's also you know the the realization that you know you can't be them and and being okay with that and that took me a long time to really get to a, pl a place of comfort with that yeah. because i think i had it in my head early on that like oh i need to be able to do everything <laughs> you know as unrealistic of a, of, of as a goal as that is there's a certain amount of that that drives you to get better. You know, it's that it's it's that um, unwillingness to just settle with what you got. You know, yep. it's like, well, I'm doing okay, but I know I could be so much better. And I and I still feel very much that way today because yeah, you you do get to the place where like, oh man, I'm I'm repeating myself or I'm sounding the same. But I, f I find myself, you know, having gotten more back into a more steady practice regimen over the past 10 years that I, there would be ruts in various parts of my life where you know you may be more inspired than others but when i really got back into just the habitual if i just do this every day you know it turns out i'm a happier guy because i'm even if i think i suck that day it's like well at least i'm at least i'm working at it yep. you know and you're yep. going to have days where where you where you're feeling okay about it and some days you're going man i just you know I need to be working a lot harder. And part of that's just physicality. Part of that's being a human being. You know, it's, it's, uh, you set the bar high and may, and maybe where you're setting the bar, you, you know, when you're below that, it may still be cool for some people. They, you know, you've had a bad gig and somebody say, man, you sounded awesome, you know, or you, or you, you think you have a great gig and they're like, yeah, crickets, you know, n nobody, mm -hmm. nobody's paying attention. Yep. So sometimes it's really hard for you to hear you, you know, um, the things that you might have that that are beautiful and, and but it's so common to you that you're not recognizing it as the special thing that it is. You're too, you know, tapped into what, oh, what you didn't do the way you wanted to do it or hearing you know, this guy, that girl, whoever it might be that are amazing. So it's just finding that the balance of like, OK, I just need I just if I can just consistently honor whatever gift that we have, if I can consistently just try to add a little bit as much as I can then that's, that's the best you can do, you know? Um, and realizing, okay, I'm not going to sound like Holdsworth. I'm not going to be as great as Lukather, but somewhere with all this, it, I'll be me. And I'll just be the best version of that that I can be. And as long as you're working towards that, there's that seems to be the real, ha that's the sweet spot. That's the happy spot for me. Yeah. Just making that effort though, you know, and, yep. be, and being consistent with it. And that yep. way you can really, you can really grow. Yep. Man, that's some great advice there. I uh, mm. It took me years to, to learn that. I was one of these guys, no, I need to be able to play this or that. And I hear jazz guys playing and go, man, I can't do that. Yeah. Country guys, I can't do that. But <laughs> then I started to yeah. realize when I heard those guys try and play ACDC style rock, yeah. that there's just something missing. It's and not I've authentic, got that yeah. something that, that's missing for that style there you go and if i was right. to try and learn their style they'd just be probably be having a little snicker going yeah you don't <laughs> listen to a lot of country do you you know <laughs> right yeah. but that's that is the key though if if you know it's one thing to learn a couple of hip jazz licks but if it's not really coming from a place of authenticity with with the you know the the hours of listening you know and not everybody's gonna want to 
they're not maybe don't care enough about jazz or, or enjoyed enough to do that. And it has to be something you really enjoy. Yeah. But um, you know, but even that, even if you're just learning a couple of licks, that's that's cool too. It's just you know, we we all have different um I think intentions and different goals and it may it's gonna vary for each person. I can only relate to my experience with, you know, what I've done, right? But uh everybody's gonna have their own path. Yeah. But uh but that's an important thing though, is realizing that yeah, we don't have to be everything, you know, but just, just keep working at the, the, just the basics. If we just work on a good vibrato, you know, good time, you know, it, you're going to sound, you're going to sound great, you know? So you, you mentioned about that, uh, you're putting in some hours on the practice. What, what kind of things do you practice? It, it varies, you know, and if I, I'll use the term practice loosely, but even if it's just playing standards every morning, you know, I love to put, I have a, a, an app called, uh, it's called iRealBook. So in the jazz world, there's the, the famous real book, which is basically all the kind of jazz standards. It's a, just a sheet with the melody and the, and the chords. And this app basically enables you to play, it's like a backing track generating app that, you know, you can choose all the things you are and you can play it in any key, any tempo, and you can pick different styles of feel. I usually choose, choose the, like the Latin because the fake drums will sound better in straight eighth and they will try to swing ding, 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 you know. Sure. Or you can just play with the click on two and four. Ding, 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 Yeah. So I'll put that on and play for an hour, you know, just have the coffee, you know, just get the, get the, get the fingers numbered up and um, navigate some chord changes. You know, um, and th but there will be times where maybe I'm, I'm working on a particular technique or just trying to just work on arpeggios and stuff. Um, it, can, it can it can vary, right? Yep, yep. But but it's really just if it, it, I, I kind of set myself up for a, a happier day if I just first thing, you know, before getting all distracted with emails and computer stuff, just play for a while. You know, just start out the day like that. that yep. That's that's a good way to start. Yep. It's funny yeah. I had. Frank Gambale on um, well, a month or two ago now. Yeah. And he said that he doesn't really practice. He just plays. Um, you know, well, everybody you go, yeah, because everybody's hoping that, that he would spill the beans on this <laughs> practice regime that he does. And he's like, man, I just, I just play. Yeah. <laughs> we're, hoping, we're hoping for the magic bullet. Yeah. But that is it. It's, and I never, I never was a good practicer. You know, I didn't have the 10-hour regiment. What was the Steve Vise thing where he had some kind of, legendary 10 hour yeah the 10 hour know, workout yep yep yeah and 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 but again you know you could tell you know he's got this structured kind of thing is both sides of his brain are on fire right so but that was never me it was but i had fun playing yep you know and i think i think every individual's got to pick what's right for them some that are, are like that that can be really regimented and structured i mean I, clearly it pays off for those that that can do things that way but i um i was just always you playing along with records. That was my main thing, yeah. you know, and then I, you know, I said when I got into school and I was having to, to shed particular things like the scales or transcribing, that's, that's really the key. If you can get a lot of playing in, but then learn, learn new stuff on a regular basis. And now there's so many great transcribing uh, apps, but again, we have so much information available to us. You know, you can, you can watch any player showing you how to do the lick, you know, on there. Yeah. I've got my own instructional stuff too. But when you, when you try to get it on your own first, you know, when you just, just use your ears, 
you know i've got a program i use called transcribe you just import I use it the, too. the track Love it. it's a it's a great one it's, it's really easy to fine tune and to to raise and lower the uh the speed and all that and that's really it i mean that's how guys of my generation learned we had a record player and our guitar there you go kid figure it out you know and and and, and those relationship because it's this is an oral experience you know, if you're learning from a page or somebody's showing you, you can get it, but you haven't earned it, if that yeah. makes sense. Yep. It's going to ingrain in a much deeper way. I, you know, trying to practice what I preach, I, when I would work with Simon Phillips over the years, you know, when he would send me new music, everything would be, you know, he would have MIDI, MIDI recorded it. It would spit out the, 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 the music sheets or whatever. And if I, but if I learned it from the sheet first, I was really in trouble because really? I, I relied on it you know what yep. i mean yep. but if i if i tr if i got the majority of it just listening to the track you know it's it, it just internalizes much faster because you've 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 taken it in through your ears not your eyes right so i think there's a there's a big thing to that where it just kind of ingrains itself in a much deeper way yeah you know orally first and then visually if necessary yeah. but I, again i'm i'm saying that i love watching all the <laughs> i'll watch the endless the videos of People showing you the lick, or and I'll read I'll read the transcriptions too if if I uh, can't quite pick it off myself, you know. Yep. But yep. but yeah, it'll last a lot longer. And I started doing more of that recently too, just going back and learning some West stuff or bits of solos from whoever, just to just to try to feed that some new idea that can open up another door. Yep. Cool. You know? Cool. Uh, back to some of the questions here. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm not sure so sure how I'm going to go with the pronunciation here. Fabricio Braga wants to know Andy. I've had a question for years about your tone at the time of Danger Danger. Uh, okay. Could you talk a little bit about your setup used at the time? Well, it, w it was uh, depending on what era. Um, there was the very first tours that we did. I had a, a preamp called the Rockmaster from PV. It was a I've heard about these. Somebody told me little, that they were really cool. I've got one somewhere. Their, their, their uh, electronics designer was a guy named James Brown, yep. believe it or not. Yep. Uh, who we did, did a, this, this, the, yeah. And, uh, so I had the, the Rockmaster preamp, but there's also a triumph. It was a 60 watt head that was modified. So there's a record called down and dirty live. What was it? It was an EP that was only uh, provided to radio stations, but, um, that's the tone on that. The first record where I did the two solos, it was a Bradshaw borrowed. Uh, it was a Kasha preamp and Bradshaw system. But then, um, the screw it record was, a. I want to. I want to say it was a JCM 900 had just come out, so it was probably like a JCM 900 and a Tube Screamer, something like that. And that tour was a. Um, I've got it somewhere here. It was a Marshall three-channel pre uh, preamp. Um, I forget it was the 9001 or 9002. Yep. Yep. Had that in a Tube Screamer and a and a PV uh, um, Profex. It was like the Intellifex multi effects. You know, it, pretty basic. It wasn't much much to it. You know. That, that was about it. I, it's about, and by the time by the time of the third record, which was called Cockroach, it was a variety of ADA preamp. Um, the rectifier had just come out, and a Zoom, little Zoom processor. I would use various degrees of those three signals for different all running sounds, like yeah. in in parallel and just bring up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just to, just depending on what what kind of time we were going to be working on. Yep. That that ADA preamp is still a great sounding preamp. I tell you what, this the old MP1 that everybody had back in the day. I have one right there. 
Yeah, it's pretty. I got it. It's pretty dang great. I, mean, I pulled it out the other day and went, well, hold on a minute. This is still great. The it clean is. sounds are, are impeccable. It's got that solid state and that great ADA chorus in there. Yeah. yeah. But when, so there was a tour that Danger Danger did with, uh, with Extreme back, and it would have been 1990. More Than Words, it was just about to break, but they had that first record out. And Nuno, what a great player. And his freaking tone. Was incredible, and he had the he had the ADA into a Macintosh, like it's like a home stereo or a, you know it was a just a power amp, right? Yep. Yep. Marshall cabs, and it was Van Halen one man. It was spot on, just sounded great. Of course, it's it's him playing it right, but yep, uh, yeah, not a, not a bad tone, man. Yeah, I only just fired it up again, um, not that long ago. I did a quick little YouTube video where I'm comparing it to the Marshall JMP one. Oh, okay. Um, the ADA really comes to life with a clean boost in front of it. So I, before you were Ooh, saying you were using really? your compressor pretty much as a clean boost. Yeah. 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 When you're palm muting, okay. no. it just makes each Ooh. little doo, 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 just jump forward really? instead of getting sucked into it. Doo, doo. Yeah. Nice, uh, if anyone's nice, interested, nice. check out on my channel. Um, oh, okay, I've cool. Got Thanks. The, yeah, a comparison video on that. Sweet. Uh, some more questions. Brooke Chevelle yeah. wants to know, um, he's about to step into a recording session. Which ah. treble bleed do you use? Is it the Seymour Duncan, Cap'n Resistor, Parallel, or Kinman, Cap'n Resistor uh, in series? I think, it's, I think it's the Duncan. I never do it myself, so but I think it's it, you can find it on the Duncan website is what the, what we're using, yeah. Okay, so you don't know the values? That was the next part. I wish I did. I'm so no, sorry. That's okay. Sorry, mate. Uh, well, you going to pop it in right before your recording session, man? <laughs> Quick, give me a capacitor and a resistor. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Uh, I, I do put a treble bleed in, in most of mine. Um, I haven't really fretted too much about the resistance value and all that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. But I was very surprised. I was playing a gig and it depends on the amp. Some amps, mm. you don't need it. I've only just worked this out. Um, okay. Whereas when I was playing a gig just through a little... I, I, I got to admit, we're talking about having to haul all your gear around to um, to a show. If I'm doing a small gig, I'll just play through an iPad. And by the time we uh, get asked to yeah. do an encore, no, no, I've already packed up. I'm out the door. Uh, but <laughs> this guitar I have right beside yeah. me, my, my Friedman, let me just. Oh, nice. Yeah, this is a beautiful. That looks sweet. Yeah, like that. Uh, Thank you for that. Yes, made by Grover Jackson. Nice. Oh, nice. Hello. Um, oops, about to drop everything here. Um, I yeah, was careful. very surprised when playing that through modeling software, basically. I was rolling back the, the, the volume knob, as I do, and I was yeah. like, I'm losing my top end. I think something's happened to my, my treble bleed circuit. And I opened it up, and okay. there was none. And it was ooh, ah. surprising, surprising. But, as huh. I said, playing through a, yeah. a nice amp, it doesn't seem to affect it that much. But Didn't, playing okay, it yeah. through a modeling software, it was really noticeable. Right. Mm. Huh. All right. Interesting. I'll just see what else we have. Uh, Question-wise, someone made the suggestion that maybe I have a clip to play as I peruse for questions. That might not be such a bad idea. A clip? Although, they said to use a clip of the artist, but I get copyright strikes by doing that. Oh, wow. saying i saw when that popped up when you're talking about your guitar and how it's been refretted numerous times somebody yeah exactly as you said that posted that up there uh, uh. i want to know why the signature has all single 
has all single coils and not an HSS setup. That was debated about with Ibanez. Um, I think I think we finally thought it was time to have a a, a three single guitar. And again, I, I I I tend to use the Bucker ones more than I do the one with the three single coils. But it was the very first guitar in many years that they would have had with three single coils. So I think it was just an opportunity to say, all right, here's if if somebody wants a straight up kind of stratty version of my guitar, which does sound quite great, I got to say, but. Um, we're now going to have a model of the, of the AZ line with the humbucker as well. That's so that's coming up, but that was just, that was, I was, I was on the fence about that one. Cause I thought, I thought it was a cool idea, but I wasn't sure, you know, if it was going to, going to fly or not, but it did very well, man. Like that really, really, really well received. So I'm very, very happy with that guitar as well. Nice. Nice. Uh, just but my got- main lead, my main, my main lead tone is always going to be based on the, it's, which is now a DiMarzio. We, I replaced the, the, the Duncan with an AT, what's called the AT1. It's basically okay. a, a custom DiMarzio pickup they make for me. Yeah, and is that similar to the JB that you were using? In in origin, but, but tweaked significantly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, now I'm getting close to it. I know that Brett asked a question about your playing. Uh, I'm almost at it. Everyone's asking Brett questions. How hard does Andy pick? This is from somebody else. Russell Bannister Music. How hard does Andy pick? Everything he plays sounds so dynamic. Well, that's that's your answer. It's, it's varying degrees, right? Because, you know, for dynamic, you have to have... You know, it, it could be any range. I mean, overall, my, my technique for full-on is, is pretty aggressive. It's not like... But with within any line, hopefully there's going to be you know some dynamic even with full game. I have a website where every month I add a new song from my catalog and I go through and, and teach how to play it. And this, this is the tune called uh, The Princess and starts like this. So just in that phrase, there was, you know, there's so many different articulations of different volumes like it turns out that like the second note gets the accent which is i don't know why i wrote it that way it just kind of came out so just that right there you can hear there's there's a shape to it not just everything's got a I mean, it's like it's like any spoken language as we're having the conversation. There's some words that are going to pop. There's going to be some words that are a little choked, a little subdued. You know, there's just this natural flow that can happen in a conversation that ideally should happen in music too, just to give it interest, to, to keep people drawn into uh, what you're trying to say, you know. Nice. You know, that's, that's something that 
I find a lot of the great players that I've had the opportunity to talk to over the last year or so, they all say about the conversation factor of it all. Yeah, right, yeah. of course. And that's something that I've always been able to hear in other musicians. It's almost like you can yeah. hear their intent, uh, whether it's like they're thinking, I'm really good, I can play faster than you. I'm really good, I can play faster than you. <laughs> it comes out like that. <laughs> and then you get guys that play. Yeah, and you know what I'm saying. That's exactly no, what you No, but, but, no, but I, I, I totally get it. Yeah, and yeah. then there's other guys that you can hear them when they play. It's like, I could cut your head off right now, but I'm just toying with you. Um, and then, you know, when they do finally spit out just a little yeah. bit of a, you just go, oh, oh exactly. I knew that was in there well, somewhere. Well, that's a beautiful thing too, to, to have that kind of um, reservation and to be able to, to have that palette to draw from to us all, not just red. It's a variety of, you know, colors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not at that point yet. I, I, I'll never be able to uh, do anybody in with chops, but you know. uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nice to have all that to draw from just to try to, you know, have a dynamic to the music. So speaking of, of the picking, what pick do you, what pick do you use? It's small, but it's hard. It's a, um, it's a Dunlop. Oh, there was a, that's what she said, uh, joking there. Uh, that's, I was, I was just blobbing that up for you, brother. It's a Torte Tortex, uh, Jazz 3. Yep. One, 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 I, I know the dimension of this 1.14 millimeter. And it's actually the, the longest running part of my signal chain. I've been using this pick since 1984. Right. Yeah. Uh, there was a music store I was teaching in when I was in Miami one summer. And, uh, one of the guys working there, this beautiful guitar player named Amit Chatterjee. Uh, I said you should try this purple pick, and I went, "All right, cool." And I, I loved it and stuff. So it's interesting. It's 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 a bright pick, and it's got a point to it. So it's not really it's not my favorite sounding pick, but I've used it for so long that you know I like the I like the sound of a Fender Extra Heavy or you know a th or a thicker nylon pick. But it's just I've developed everything around it because I've played with it so long. It's really hard for me to use anything else. Yeah. You know, and I, and I use a bit of my nail. I'm using a bit of my nail and flesh and the pick at the same time. So there's a little bit. So that note there is, is catching flesh, nail, and pick. So this nail never fully grows. It's always kind of black and, yeah, and like yeah. worn away. And there's a bit of the finger that gets. But that's nice. Really I'm loving that sound, man. You, you got the the bite, but it's Thank not you. harsh. It's 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 beautiful. Ah, I'm yeah. trying. But that unfortunately, that camera of yours, when you held out the pick, you know, normally I have a hard time trying to get it to, to focus on things. Oh, I did, to my, and, and, I've and, and, it's lost focus? focus on your face now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think I know how to fix that. You know, you you have worked that out. Better. No. That'll because I can't. You don't, you don't have me on the screen, so I can't see. Uh, that's better but there you go right, magic. magic i can be lighting guy and camera guy as well yeah yeah <laughs> you just alerted modern me to times, something man. normally i i oh, know that's that's fine i was gonna say i i don't usually have the guests seeing what's being broadcast and yeah i usually have them just seeing me that way they forget that we're on air and that's just okay. natural, but I just checked that setting and no, all you can see is me. That's good. I'm back to questions because 
speaking of me, there's me. Um, yeah. Question from Brett Garsed. How does yes, Brett. An- how does Andy pick the intro to "She's Leaving Home" without the delay being used? Just unbelievable. Oh, that's that's a good that's a good one. Um, yeah. So the the original Beatles recording had a, a harpist come in and play, and she just played. And then they doubled it. You know, they put the eighth note um, delay on to So. This, so this track I did I did a, a remake of the whole Sgt. Pepper record. So I put the long delay on, but then I just double I just double pick each note. So it's so I'm I'm emulating that slapback echo that they put on it. Yep. But I'm just you know hard to do slow. Tend to practice that one, but that's it. Just it's like alternate picking. All right, Brett, that's my one lick. Now you got to show me how to play slide. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, he's so good. I love Brett's slide playing. Um, Yeah, it's otherworldly, man. It is, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll embarrass him and tell a story I've told before, but I'll tell it here for. A new set of listeners, but we were doing a guitar festival in uh, in Bucharest, Romania, put on this by this uh, lovely Italian friend of ours, Sicilian guy, and uh, but it was uh, it was Michael Angelo, and Brett, and myself, Greg Howe, Richard Hallerbeek, and I may be forgetting somebody, and I'm apologizing if I, but some some really incredible guitar players, you know. So it was, it was a, a day of everybody doing kind of clinic and, and, and playing and performance and chats. and But then we're all going to play together at the end of the night, right? And so Greg had his laptop and we he's, he had some backing tracks, but he, they kept not loading, right? We had nothing nothing to play to. And this is whole line of guys. And so I just went, or whatever I did. Uh, I kick off a little wing. 
So everybody plays a solo, right? Yep. And Michelangelo sounded really great on Everybody's Burning. And uh, it comes to Brett and he pulls out the slide. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, that was game over, man. Everybody, everybody else can just go home now and just played one of the sweetest solos I've ever heard. Just, just freaking absolutely gorgeous. So. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. The, the very memorable moment. We had a great time on that. The, the whole hang was, was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's funny, you know, Brett, uh, like his hybrid picking and his legato and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I brought it up with him when I had him on uh, on the show last year, just about there was a John Farnham concert on TV and every oh. guitar player my age all yeah. saw this and this extended solo he took. Mind blowing. But it's <laughs> yeah. when he puts on the slide yeah. on the Farnham yeah. solos that – the melodies oh. just come out and just like, Oh man, if I could play slide guitar like anybody, it'd, it'd be Brett. You know, it's, it's to, to bring up a point and yeah, I, and I agree about all the stuff that the Brett does is just absolutely incredible. Um, there was a moment I had with Mike Stern, uh, who who's again, he's one of my biggest heroes, but I've gotten to be friends with him and we've, we've played together a bunch now just in, you know, just, just sitting two guys playing guitar, you know, and uh, there was this one day I was in I was in New York. I play at this club called the Iridium a couple times a year. Um, and when I'm in town, I'm, I'm always calling Mike. And if he's around, he'll invite me down to his place, and we'll we'll play some standard, try it. And so this one afternoon, I got to, I went down there. My friend Nick Kinnerk was in town with me. He was just came, came along for the trip. A really fine guitar player, a buddy of mine. So we went around to Mike's place to play, and you know he's. Mr. Vocabulary. He's got all the bebop stuff. He plays all these incredible patterns. But every now and then he 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 plays some octaves like Wes. And that's when things got different. There was a different type of melody that would happen. You know what I'm saying? It was like yeah. because all the all the licks went away. Yep. All the patterns went away. It's like ear and melody. And it's you know, it's just something that I do with a lot of students. I'll give them the one string, one finger challenge. You know, first, first I'll say, we're in the key of A minor, just play, you know, and then you'll get a lot of pentatonic stuff and all the licks, the bluesy stuff they know. Okay, now forget that. You've got one finger, G string, you know, six notes. And then they start playing again, and all of a sudden, melodies start happening mm. instantly. Because you take away everything else, all this other ability you have, oh, now you've now you're left with your survival instincts, your ear, and okay, what do you want to hear? And it's a really pretty beautiful thing, and that's what slide will do for somebody, and that's what playing octaves. But sometimes it's good to just strip everything away. What's what's really there? Yep. And you're really going to hear the person. That's why you know we we're you know waxing on about. Brett's thing and it's a beautiful thing you know of course it's handy to have the chops to do all this other incredible stuff blow the mind but when that melody comes out now we've got a whole other level of something that's mm. really special absolutely I did see Brett yeah. drop the comment of that's it I friggin' quit after hearing you play just before <laughs> <laughs> oh come on man it's a good load now well, I mutual, mutual just... admiration man because I, I you know yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. I, I did just find a magic button as you were talking before that allows me to add favorites to questions, and I've just favorited oh. them. And now I can go back and not have to sort and just go straight to the questions. Fabricio, man, you're getting your money's worth today. Uh, Andy, why don't you play your old songs nowadays, like Late Night, I Have No Idea, There Before You, Sometimes. I really love these songs. Oh, man. Well, thank you, Fabrizio. 
Um, maybe he's been, because those are songs I don't necessarily have tracks for. So he may be alluding to, I've been doing quite a few shows on live, you know, live stream on a platform called Stage It. And I started doing them at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, uh, so I've done over 100 shows since the lockdown started. Oh, cool. You know. Yeah, there was, um, you know, right when things were locking down, that, I guess it was March, wasn't it? At least yep. here in the States. Um, Stage It, you, you, know, you said, huh? Yeah, so it's it's a platform where you know people can log on. And it, I, you can set your own ticket price, and I just I I just make it pay what you want. People can literally pay fifty cents to come hang, or but some people are generous and pay you know pay what they would pay for a regular yep. ticket at a concert or whatever. But so I you know when things shut down, I quickly realized well I better figure out what I'm going to do here. And I saw a buddy of mine posting on Facebook saying, Hey, I'm I'm doing a show on stage at you know two p.m. eight p.m on this particular day. And I just reached out to him and said, Hey, show me how to do this. I need to figure out how to do gigs from home. Cause we're not going anywhere for a while. Right. So I quickly got set up and I, so from that moment, I did two shows every Saturday, almost every week. So again, I've done 120 shows now. Wow. <laughs> Since the lockdown. And so over that course of the shows, and I do two every Saturday and each show would be different usually. Um, so, but fortunately, you know, over the years with my back catalog, I basically have most of my tracks without the lead guitar or without the vocal, but, um, but the, the tunes that he mentioned are tunes that I, ha it's like some of the only songs I haven't done, you know, but I've been playing literally every old song I've got a track for. So, yep, yep. uh, but I, I like those tunes for Bricio and I appreciate you asking. So maybe, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can figure out a way of, of playing those, but, but yeah, people can find me, uh, almost every Saturday on stage .com. Uh, I'm doing one this coming Saturday. So it's, uh, and I have people from Australia logging on Of course, they have to get up at all hours of the, because I did the one at two, at 2 PM would, it would be what, uh, five in the morning yeah something like that so so i do one at five in the morning then 8 p.m then it's gonna be 11 p.m so but i have a couple of loyal folks over there that like you know tuning in from whatever hour yeah but uh, this coming this come like this coming saturday i'm doing one at 5 p.m uh so whatever that is for you eight eight in the morning uh, but it's it's my birthday weekend so i'm just gonna do a set of beatles where i'm just singing acoustic guitar get out the old texts and you know so i'll do shows like that sometimes too just completely off the beaten path and you know, well, I'll play a bit of lead guitar as well, but uh, nice. So, so to, it, to find you on there, yeah, is it stageit.com? Yeah. Is that what it's called? That's it. Yeah. Stage yeah. And just do a search it, for Andy Timmons on there. Andy Timmons. Yeah. And that, yep. uh, the, the, they'll find the shows that way. Awesome. But gen awesome. generally every, every Saturday, it comes and goes occasionally, but that's been a great way for me to, you know, a make a bit of a living while we're staying at home, but stay connected to the fans too. And there's a really loyal group of people that come to nearly every show. It's incredible. Great. So that's uh, and that's uh, something that I'll, I will continue to do even when the, the tours start back up. It's just something easy I can do from home. Like we're like we're sitting here now. It's why not? You know, it, it, it was great during that entire time to have these gigs every weekend to kind of have this. You know, there's plenty of stuff that I could do as far as my own website and and whatever session stuff I might be able to do uh, remotely. But you want to play too, you, even even though it's in front of a camera, and it's it's really bizarre to put your heart and soul into something and you finish the song and it's like, you don't hear anything. Yeah. You, know? you, you have people typing, you know, applause and all caps. And yay. <laughs> that's what I need. I need something like that. I need to get an, I need an applause app. That's, that's handy. So it's like, but you learn how to navigate it and you get comfortable, you know, after, after doing it for a while. So, but it's a lot of fun, man. Yep. I enjoy yep. doing that. So Fabrizio, I'll work on those late night is a fun one. 
Okay, got a question here uh, from Dave Self. Andy, do you have any more collaboration plans with Kip Winger? Your recent She Said cover was brilliant. Uh, thank you. That's that's why the old Vox is out, actually. Um, yeah, that was, uh, for those that haven't seen it, it's Mike Portnoy, Kip Winger, and Jeff Scott Soto and myself. We did a, a collaboration video for a, uh, the David Z Foundation, which was uh, raising, raising money for music education. But uh, so... The way the track was put together was pretty backwards in that uh, Portnoy just, he played along with the Beatle track. So he didn't, no, no click, no, just, but just played with, along, along with Ringo, you know, yep. then sent the track to Kip, Kip played the bass, and they sent me the track, and it was pretty much straight up their arrangement, but then Mike added kind of a, a jam at the end, went to the double kick and got, you know, a little fusion-y with it. All right, but so I, I have an old Epiphone Casino. That's an, another one of those Beatle-y guitars that, you know, with the P90s. So I got that out and put it into the Vox AC30, turned it all the way up, and it's like, that's the sound, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've, so I've done, if 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 the guy that asked the question didn't know, I've done uh, every one of Kip's solo records. Um, most notably, the first couple, uh, one was called This Conversation Seems Like a Dream from 1994, 95. And still to this day, that's one of my favorite records I've ever been a part of. Kip is really a brilliant guy. And uh, if, if you've kept up with him at all, his classical work that he's doing now is just incredible. The, the orchestral works that he's writing is are just incredible. Yeah, right. Um, so he and I, you know, we, we, we've, we've long wanted to be in a band together. In fact, I was asked to join Winger when, uh, when Paul Taylor left back in the early 90s. The, the original keyboard player, second guitar player left the band. I was still in Danger Danger, so... I, I didn't, you know, I couldn't do it, but uh, but I've known Kip and Reb a long time, and we're, and we're tight. But uh, Kip's Kip's brilliant, man, and I I really I want to I want him to write an orchestral piece for me at some point. So I think we'll we'll do some stuff like that eventually, you know. Cool. But uh, yeah, nothing but respect for the guy. He's brilliant. Nice, nice. I, I got to say, uh, Winger weren't really a, a big thing over here. Um, okay. I, I'd see them in. Uh, guitar magazines, uh, yeah, always yeah. have you know, Kip Winger, but uh, uh, and and Red Beach, of course. Well, Reb, of course, yeah, very unique player. Yeah, yeah. I actually got to hear a lot more of him later on um, through the magic of YouTube. There's a lot of things that I yeah, read about sure. as a kid, but actually got to look right. up on you on YouTube years later. Sure, and, sure. Yeah, no, I love Reb's playing. I, he's somebody I'd love to yeah. get on the show. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna try and get a hold of him somehow. I can. But, well, I can hook. I can hook you up. He's a very good friend of mine, man. So oh. I'd, I'd be happy to put you to. No, he's he's one of the great players that you instantly recognize his sound and his playing when you hear him. You know what what he developed his own way of tapping in a very I think a very unique and and very personal sound, and I think he's just incredible. Yeah, we became really good friends back back in the early '90s, and really to this day. But they just kept, the winger the, the winger band came to town, maybe about a month or so ago, and I went out to see him, and we did a, did a little jam, you know, that got me up on the stage to to play a little bit. But Reb's he's amazing, man, really unique player. Cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, mate, I'll talk to you about getting in touch with him afterwards. No uh, problem. Just looking at the questions again. A yeah. Question from from Charles Cilia. I don't know if you've heard of Charles of. Charles Cilia guitars in Australia, man. Cilia guitars are okay. beautiful, beautiful guitars. Uh, I like guitars. And Charles is watching and wants to know, what, Andy, Charles? you used the cruiser bridge pickup in the neck and middle. Was this a choice because of the increased output or a happy accident? Yeah. The, the, okay, so now that this has changed, though. the original pickup in the neck position was the bridge. 
but it was because of that, you know, the increased output. But um, now I've, I've I've reverted back to the, the just the just the neck pickup, and it's and it's because it's a bit brighter, which I realize I like the the bridge in the neck, but then I really oh I kind of like this a little it's a little sweeter tone. So this has been replaced. This is not original to the guitar. As you can see, this is a bit yellower, but the age. So it's now a proper neck in the neck position. And uh, how, ordinary, noticed, how ordinary and boring, yeah. <laughs> I've noticed for years that your your pickguard is broken. You've never gotten around yes. to fixing that. Why, well, that's what. Why would you fix it? You know, I'm like, oh, I've got some buckle rash. I need to. Rep no, I, I earned it, man. Yeah, this this thing, it was it was it was kind of pointy, Florentine like the like the cutaway. Yeah. And it started kind of. It's I noticed at one point it was just kind of starting to warp and and bend. Then one day it was gone, and I've had so many people want me to fix that. And like, let me make you a new one. It's like, no, man. It's like, it's part. It's part of its its age. It's history. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to fix that. I've, I've got a new one over there. It's it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> cool. Uh, there was a not. Uh, do I even read this one out? Can you do some covers of the monkeys? Do you know any monkey songs? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Just a fairy tale made for someone else, but not for me. Our love was out again, not just the way it seemed. Disappointed, haunted on my dream. But then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer, not a trace. I've never done this before. <laughs> so in my mind. I'm in love, Ooh, I'm a believer, couldn't leave her if I tried. So, written by, written by Neil Diamond, that one. Oh, wow. That was written by Neil Diamond. If you listen to the acoustic guitar on it, I bet it's Neil Diamond playing on it because it sounds like that Gibson guitar that he's got. But talking about your buddy Le uh, uh, Louis Shelton. Iconic guitarist of all time, man. Just and he made that up on the spot, apparently. <laughs> it's so great. So yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, no, I'm a beat bit and like I already played that one. I'm not just stepping stone. That's a great riff, you know. So yeah. monkeys were, you know, they called them the prefab four. But those the America's answer to the Beatles, and they had their own Saturday morning television show. They were huge, man. But they, those singles were great. Really great songs, man. Just a, a mm. random thing I remember Louis telling mm. me just over a coffee one day was um, you mentioned Neil Diamond. Um, yeah. The first time Neil came into the studio and he worked with him, he said, man, I had to tune his guitar for him. He couldn't even tune his own guitar. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's that's funny, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. G-Man, you, you got your monkey covers there. <laughs> no no extra charge man yeah. now i think we already touched on this andy what is your definition of an amazing practice schedule you already told us what you go through there with practice yeah time. i mean that's that's just it you, everybody's got to kind of tailor to what is is best for them i mean 
the goal is more time spent on the instrument. Whatever you're doing, it's it's val fingers on the frets is valuable. So just play as much as you can. I mean, but obviously there has to be learning along the way. So just figure out, you know, just learning little bits every day. You know, I, I, I'm always wary of just playing too much scales, right? Scales are a means to learning the guitar, but shouldn't be, you know, the attempt at music. You know what I mean? It's, it's like I say, that's when I, when I learned all the modes and everything, it was, okay, now I've got the roadmap. It's not like, oh, I want to play these scales, but now I can kind of see where the notes are and I... It, it helped me it helped me visualize the fretboard in a much more horizontal way or because you know we tend to be kind of positional players in in horizontal ways but now I, I saw how it all blended together you know not just positioned you know just in one spot it's what's just all leads together and that i think that helps me find things melodically as well mm -hmm. uh you know you were, we were talking before just about the, the conversational value and i guess yeah. if, if if you just spend all your time practicing scales it's like just having pre-recorded <laughs> answers to questions people might ask you in in life, isn't it? And it's going to get well, yeah, very boring really quickly. It is, and it's not really saying anything. It's it's again, it's, there's not many melodies that I know that just sound like a scale. You know, there's the rare like line from like you know, hello, goodbye. <laughs> rarely going to hear a scale in any music but that just happens to be a, the counter line you know they they got away with oh i'm going to play just the major scale there you go you just yeah. see the moment happening well that's yeah. nice but it's it's extremely rare so you know again learn learn and practice the scales to a degree but practice melodies learn melodies to your favorite songs what melodies do you dig there's there's a lot more information that's useful there, you know. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a common thing that comes up with the guests, um, all, mm. all recommending just learning to play other people's songs. And, of course, um, yeah. You know, taking a little little bits of those, get them under the fingers, and then when you need to express yeah. what yeah. what it is that you want to express, then you've got these little things you can fall back on. You've got the ideas, and you've heard yeah. what. Well, here's what the greats do, you know. Yeah. Let me let me do something like that. Same with songwriting, you know, learn, you know, learn, learn the song and, and, and learn the structure ideas from that and do your own thing with it, obviously. But this is good to have the foundation. Yep. Before I ask this next question, I'm just going to point out that I'm, that I'm learning that in Australia, we, we pronounce some things different and okay. uh, it's Mesa Boogie. Um, we, yes. says Mesa Boogie. And Mesa I started saying okay. Mesa and people look at me weird. Mesa. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it is. Like, it's odd. Uh, there's... A chap in Germany, Thomas Blug, who makes the Blue Guitar oh, Amp One. You know Thomas? I know Thomas very well. I'm a big He's fan. He's a cool of his guy, playing. isn't he? He's a lovely great chap. guy. Great player. Great yeah, tone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Thomas pointed out when I had him on the show uh, that there's an Australian term that we throw around called yeah. quad box when it comes to a speaker cab, the four by twelve. We we call it a oh, quad fox. box. Quad box. Okay. I had no idea that that was uniquely Australian until he mentioned yeah. that, and then I googled it. And was like, hang on, every reference to the word quad box comes back from an Australian site. I think he's onto wow. something here. Yeah. 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 So I'm actually going to yeah, pronounce it go. properly here when I ask. Uh, Hi, Andy. This is from Russell Bannister Music. If you could only play one Mesa Boogie amp model, what would it be? Uh, well, the Lone Star has been the main amp I've used since 2005. 
I've owned some other maces that I like quite a bit, but uh, this has just been kind of the one that is the best for me, you know. And, the and sad why is thing that? Is, what, is that? What, what's the appeal of the Lone Star? Initially, it was it was the lead channel that most most types of gain amps, you know, once you get the saturation to where you like it to play, can be a bit bright and buzzy and harsh, right? And this was one of the first amps that came along to like, oh, this is. I'm actually rolling off the, you know, rolling off the bass and adding trebles. Like it's like, it was a, it was a different thing for me. It was it was very woolly and very close to what I was going for. And just getting the gain set just right and putting a tube screamer in front of it just would just be just the sweet spot. And but at, over the years, I ended up gravitating towards just really using the clean channel. And it's just like a lovely transparent, you know, clean tone. It, it, the, the amp comes uh, stocked with six oh sixes. But it's you can switch it to EL thirty fours and switch the bias, and that's what I gravitated towards because, like I said, it's a pretty low end heavy amp, and the thirty fours really tighten tighten the low the low end up a bit and gives a bit bright sparkle on top. Um, so my, yeah, the Mesa is a, a tremendous company, makes phenomenal amps, but this one was also very a very simple amp too. Yeah, there wasn't you know thirty thousand switches and stuff. And I was about to ask you that whether it was like yeah. uh, the, the rectifier the, series where you can choose between you know solid state valve rectifiers, etc. Well, um, yeah, it's the same with us. You can you can choose the solid state or, or tube, and and I like the the solid state rectifier. Believe it or not, you think everything tube is better, but it's it's, it's the response, it's the immediacy of the tone. I yep. too much sponge is not good for me. You know, I need yep. every I need control over the every as much dynamic as I can. Yeah. You know, it, it can be a nice sound or a nice feel, but again, sometimes if for the more dexterous passages or or some of the more dynamic things, it can be a little sacrifice there. Yeah. Well, um, I mentioned so that, that's, that's my favorite. Yeah. I mentioned that little that bloom that I'm hearing around the front end yeah. of your notes, and I, I guess using a, a, a tube rectifier would detract from that, wouldn't it? It may. It may. It may um, I don't know. It may actually add a bit more bloom, to be honest. I mean, uh, but I, I just, for whatever reason, I just, I just gravitated towards the solid state for just more control over the articulation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Again, uh, pronunciation, Muhammad sure. Iham Basir. Hey, Andy, can you give your opinion on Scott Henderson and Alan Holdsworth? Thank you. Oh God. I mean, we don't have enough time and I don't have enough superlatives. We'll first start with Alan and just... You know, it's going to be years before people really catch up to the things that he was doing, you know. Um, and Scott Henderson just may be, you know, one of, if not the greatest guitar players. It just, you know, um, just always such an incredible tone and vocabulary and sense of melody. And uh, just one of those guys that has just continued to grow over the years. I mean, he started out when I you know, first heard of him. Maybe it was the early 90s. I don't remember when he first started getting on the scene, but just always, always recognize quickly that this is just one of the greatest players, you know. But a big fan of both guys. And, just you know, just I'll just stand back and just, you know, enjoy in awe when I hear them play. Both both incredible. I was just listening to a, a wonderful uh, record that Alan's on the other day uh, called Enigmatic Oceans by Jean-Luc Pony. And it's some, some early, that's not, the earliest Holdsworth, but he just plays, and there's there's a few passages where it's, you know, he's known for pretty out there and, and incredible technical stuff, but there's a few solos he takes that are just the most lyrical, beautiful, heartbreaking melodies you, you'll ever hear. He was just capable of such a wide 
scope of sound and, and application of his abilities. It's, again, just stunning. Just what, and what a unique voice, too, you know. Awesome. Hmm. Uh, I've got another question here from yeah. Mike Barnholden. Hello, Andy. What does it take to become successful in the music business industry? Wow. <laughs> I, That's a big question. I don't that, – that was a great question. Um, and, boy, when I find out, I'll let you know, you know. Um, again, there's there's so many levels to this question. And and what is the music business? <laughs> you know, what, what exactly is that? Speaking personally for me, you know, and, and again, it seems like – the, the the actual professional applications are just ever ever shifting right you know for me being you know it was just getting a gig or getting a you know a band you know on, on a label or whatever it might be but that goalpost has changed significantly but realistically for me early on i think i recognized and i mentioned it earlier in the interview where you know whatever the ultimate goal was which back when i was growing up it was being in a band on a major label that was just you know, that was what I had considered. That must be the holy grail. That's, you know, that's the, you want to be in the big leagues. That's it. But I thought, well, no, that's not going to work. I need to find something more um, realistic. You know, and that's where I considered the session work. But basically what ended up happening as far as whatever career I've had, and it's, I've been, I've done just about anything you can do with a guitar in your hands. It was just about, you know, being open to learning as much, uh, you know, the most variety of things that you can do, right? You know, so I, w I was always able to, if somebody offered me a gig, no matter what it was, I would usually just say yes. And then even, if I wasn't a country player, boy, I would learn as much country as I could to take the gig, you know? So, you know, for, for me, it was all about diversification. Because once, once I joined Danger Danger, you know, I'd already played classical and blues and, and quite a bit of jazz, you know, and all, and all the rock stuff. So, but, Danger Danger came along, straight ahead rock and roll kind of band that, okay, this is full circle for me. It came very naturally, and I was shredding a bit, so it was where I kind of wanted to go. But I'd ha the, the same time I got the the gig offer for Danger Danger, I had a, I had an offer to join Tower of Power. Oh, wow. Which was a whole different thing, you know, because yep. they had come through town, and Steve Grove was a tenor player that I'd gone to Miami with and said, hey, our guitar player is leaving to take another gig. Come sit in, and I went and sat in. They're like, "Yeah, you know, you know." They offered me the gig, but I just had the Danger Danger offer, so I was this fork in the road, right? So all this to say that you know, once Danger Danger had its run, you know, a lot of guys in bands of that of that genre, you know, once that couple years of exposure and fame and record deal goes away, what are you going to do? Mm. Well, I'd already had all this other experience, so I just went right back into session work doing xyz whatever you know then ended up doing the simon phillips gig and the olivia newton olivia newton john gig which couldn't have been more polar opposite but two very different sets of chops and abilities of equal difficulty believe it or not you know yeah. not many shredders could go in and do olivia's gig authentically and well you know and yeah. I, t I took great pride in in doing that you know as well as simon's gig Right, which is you couldn't get any more proggy and odd time signature than that gig, right? Yep. But I loved it all equally. So for me, success was just realizing that, well, if I can have a guitar in my hands and make a living somehow. And that 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 came from, you know, being educated and well versed enough to be able to plug myself into any situation. 
but really make it work and make it work on, on the highest level possible. So I always say to anybody, you know, and all these gigs happen mostly by word of mouth. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of any other gig where I actively pursued something. It was all, you know, hey, and, you know, I hear you're, you hear you might be good for this gig or whatever it might be. It's because I treated every gig like it's the most important gig I'm ever going to do. Right? If it's, a, it's playing cover tunes with somebody on the corner pub or, you know, wh whatever gig it might be, because you never know who's going to be there or who's playing with you that later on might lead to, you know. And that's, that's the thing with Simon. You know, he saw me come in prepared for the first time we played together was a big Ibanez jam called the Axe Attack in 1993, NAMM show. It was Sean Lane, uh, Alex Skolnick, Paul Gilbert, Joe Cetriani, Red Beach, Steve I, and me. So it was me and Simon Phillips and Gerald Veasley from Weather Report were put together as the core rhythm section, and we backed up each other guy that night. But Simon's deal was like, well, you know, in between each act, I want to play one of my fusion tunes. So I'd never played with Simon, but Bill Comiskey at Ibanez thought, oh, and I know Andy's not just a danger, danger shredder. He can do this. So he recommended me. So I come in, I, I have all of Simon's stuff nailed, which is not easy stuff, but also learned everybody else's. Like Satriani couldn't rehearse. So I played all his tunes with Simon. So Simon saw this, you know, and so he thought of me that he needed a guitar player for his band four years later. Hey, Andy, you know, why was that? Well, you know, I did this one gig and came in. And then when it came time for, you know, Olivia needs a guitar player. Brett can't make it. Ah, Simon's like, call Andy, because, you know, this guy. It's So, you know, your gig may not be with Simon Phillips on the corner, but it might be somebody that later on, you know, might have some gig that's really important and it could lead to other things. Absolutely. But it's it, it's the thing that I always say, it's like, but even if it's just the cover band gig and it's going to be nothing more well, do you want it to be okay or do you want it to be great? You know, why not make it, try to make it great. The The material deserves that respect. The other players deserve the respect. Hopefully you, you know, care enough to want it to be great. Why not treat every gig like that? Is that your phone buzzing or is that me? I thought I turned it off. My apologies. That's okay. I can't hear it. Uh, I'm, buzz, I'm buzzing somewhere. That's but okay. yeah, so that, I mean, but I don't, I, these days it's hard for me to say, how do you become successful? Because I, I really don't know. But something that Elvis Costello said in an interview that I read in the maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, that just, you know, just continue to do what you do and try to make it on the highest level possible. And he was talking about songwriting. So but it kind of applies is that even it's some it's somebody somewhere was is even if it's at the bottom of the ocean, they're going to find it. Yeah. You know, if you really have something of value and you have something that, you know, is is valuable. And these days with the Internet, you know. It's the blessing and the curse. Everybody can put a video up. But if you really do have something great to offer, I think that the, the people will find you, you know. Um, but not to say that you can't actively also beat down the, the doors. I was just never an aggressive person. I'm still not. I'm not a great self-promoter, but, you know. You know, the, the whole so, just I'll, say yes, that seems to be a, a very common thing that a lot of the people I've had on bring up as yeah. well. And I think that's a great bit of advice to everybody. And, and you're right. You never know who's watching. Uh, exactly. I was playing in a very, uh, in a very small club in Surface Paradise, just down the road from me here, uh, the tourist part of town, uh, a couple of years ago, and I was having a, a good night. There was nobody there, but I was having one of those nights where <laughs> uh, anything I could think of playing, my fingers would do it. Yeah. And I had a lady come and approach me afterwards and said, "Hey, um, hmm. 
I work for a management team that works with a band called the Dead Daisies, and they're currently looking for a guitar player. We'd really like for you to audition. And wow. and wow. Uh, I gave my details. I didn't hear anything, but about a week or two later, I saw that they had Doug Aldrich. Uh, I, just I was going to say, I recognize, I recognize the name of the band. Yeah. yeah, and I thought, you know what? I don't feel so bad that I didn't get a call. Just the fact that they saw me playing somewhere and, and said they were well, auditioning. That, that's in, that's it. You, you never know, you yeah. know? So yeah. just always, always, you know, have that, that, that bar set high. Why not? Yeah. You yeah. Know? And also, like you said, playing with Simon Phillips in one situation and that leading on to other things. Yeah. Uh, I said yes to filling in with a, a small cover band, um, playing at a wedding. There was hardly anybody there, but the bass player from that group said, you were fantastic. You will hear from me again. He was yeah. uh, the bass player in a very successful Australian early 80s band called the Uncanny X-Men. A couple of years later, nice. uh, there's a show get, gets around called um, Absolutely 80s with the lead singers from a whole bunch of Australian classic oh, bands. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And he called me up and said, remember I said I was going to call you one day? Well, mate, we need a guitar <laughs> player for this run of shows. And I wow. said yes. <laughs> so you're absolutely oh, that's great, right, man. man. You just got to say yeah, yes to all the... All the gigs. There's a no beauty to what. it. Yep. yep. Yeah. No, that's fantastic, man. Uh, Again, like a, like a guitar in your hands, whatever it is, don't don't have so much pride that you're above it. You know, just yep. be happy. You're playing music. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got a few more questions. You still got time to answer some questions? Let's do it, man. Yep, Absolutely. Yep. Uh, from Alex Lopez, can Andy talk about the main differences between the AT model and the AT three hundred? Oh yeah, um, I I had it here earlier. The AT three hundred. This is another prototype. This isn't quite it. This was one of the lead ups to what became the AT three hundred, but it was kind of modeled after the Ibanez SA guitars in the early two thousands. And so it's a mahogany body with the pickup straight into the body. Eventually, I had some really nice inlays put on it, um, but this is kind of ish. But the main idea was that it was you know to be like fairly like the dimensions of my 100 but kind of fitting into their SA line that they had so but obviously with the with the rosewood neck and that guitar um was the guitar they ended up using on the record called resolution so it's a bit bolder tone this is obviously a bit more stratty but with the with the mahogany and the rosewood board you're going to get a bit more gibsony land of tone right and so it really fit the it really fit the mood of that record i think um, and I still like to use it. This one is, is is a rarity because it's it's one I had with the Fernandez sustainer put in it. Yep. Um, which, like I say, back in the Kramer days, my first Kramer that I had was the first time I think that a sustainer pickup had been created by a, it was called the Floyd Rose sustainer. Yep. Um, so this would have been 1988, and I used it on that first Danger Danger record. Um, and it's actually a wonderful effect, and I used it, I, I think, pretty well back in the day. Um, I just got this out yesterday because I did a tune on my stage at show that required that sound. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll dig it out. But I think I don't think it's working quite up to snuff. So I want to work on that. But I, it, the the technology is that it's it's it only works with the bridge pickup on, and then this turns into the sustainer and drives the string. But I would like the sustainer effect, but with a neck pickup sound. So I want to work on that. I'm not sure if that's been developed yet or not. But. Um, that would that would that would be more useful for me. Yeah, somebody mentioned yeah. that that maybe the Phil Collin model guitar has that perhaps. Yeah, Phil's one. No, because that's what I'm looking for. It's still it's still a, a drives at all. I, I've got a, a Sustainiac actually in my Hamer, just sitting over oh, okay. the other. 
Okay. And I recently upgraded that. I've got a... I'll go and grab it. Just one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. But again, after having not used uh, that sound for so long, when I used it yesterday, I was like, oh, yeah, I think that's that's a thing I need to get back into. And this was such a big part of my style for so long in the 90s. Let me just right. change the angle there so we see a bit more of this. But I Yeah, have... sure. There we go. So so that's the Sustainiac. Is, Sustainiac, is, is this the, uh, one is. is is the is the Fernandez still being made? I'm not sure now. I don't even know who still makes these units. Uh, there it yeah. is. Yeah. So that used okay. to. Oh. So can have you can you have a neck pickup tone and get the drive? Not at the same time. Uh, that's the that's yeah. See, that's when the you thing. turn it on, it reverts to the bridge pickup. It, that's what I mean. That's that's what this Fernandez does too. Yeah. My understanding is that it needs to be far away from the other pickups. You may be able to put it into the bridge position so that when you turn it on, it reverts yeah. to the sound <laughs> being picked up by the neck. Alan, uh, yeah, Alan, it's, it's, Alan Hoover at um, Maniac Music, who is the guy that invented the Sustainiac, would okay. be all over that. Um, Interesting. Yeah, these, these things are great. I, I love it, being able to flip yeah. the switch and... And people are just looking at you like, how have you got such amazing control of feedback? It's like, ah, I got a switch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it can be it can be a very, very musical thing. I mean, it can also get away from you and be too much sometimes, but I think there's a lot of potential there. I love so, it. So look for me with crazily sustained notes soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Go out for a bite and come back, yeah. Now g-man music andy how do you mic your amps position on the speaker now i'm just looking at your yeah. setup there and i don't see any mics mm. on your cabs that's right because they're in the next room oh i've got uh i'm coming out of both uh both the, both the heads uh into i've got two mesa two by 12 cabs uh stacked one on the other it's like this is like the upstairs of my home so this is like the rec room and there's a, a spare bedroom next to me so that's where that's where the cabs are with a with a door for isolation. It's quite loud. God bless my my family downstairs dealing with this. With so so very, very standard, just a fifty seven, and I'll get it about uh, three knuckles away from the grill cloth, just just off the cone, just right right on the edge of the cone, not on it. It gets too bright for me. So. tried you know there's some nice ribbon mics that could be cool in certain combinations it's just always the 57 though cheapest mic wins as they say yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, you know but it, the, the placement ma makes it makes a big a big difference now if for for my my weekly shows and stuff I, I don't get too crazy about the mic placement but when we did the resolution record and then uh, the theme from a perfect world mike dane and i would spend a lot of time really getting the placement right and really experimenting with you know not using eq just finding the right placement and try to keep it as organic as possible but nice. uh, that seems to work it seems to work for me yep uh i just had charles cilia confirm that the fernandez and the sustainiac are the same tech so uh, oh it is okay yeah yeah um okay yep uh well, i'm interested yeah, to, to, to further my knowledge of that not really gear related. Andy, what is your favorite kind of coffee? 
the things people ask. Oh, that's right? a good that's a good question. Well, yeah, I'm just I'm a dark roast guy. Uh, in, in, in anything in Italy seems to work really well for me. So it's a long commute, but I don't know how the Italians get it so much better than us. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just any dark roast. I love a nice espresso. I but I generally have americanos these days. Get a nice espresso, add some water to it, and I'm a happy guy. Nice, nice. Yeah. I've only got a couple more questions left there. So, sure. folks, if you do have any more questions for Andy, now's the time to drop them in the comments section as I just go through a couple more here. Uh, hey, Andy, most guitarists have the one music store they use. What is yours? <laughs> who's, this, who's this question coming from? PH Productions. The, the next part of it says, would it be the Guitar Sanctuary? This could be <laughs> Of course it's the Guitar. Yeah, the Guitar Sanctuary is like literally, you know, within a stone's throw here it just happens to be my dearest friends that own and run the place well there you go so, but, so i i am biased but it is literally one of the greatest guitar shops in, in the world it's just it tends to be uh, more on the upscale they've got the really nice you know the nice the nice guitars all the boutique pedals the great amps um my best friend you know built the place and, and owns it george fuller and the guy that he's got in there running the shop a guy named brian meter is really a, a go-to guru for me. I've, there's, I've never met anybody as knowledgeable about every piece of gear that comes out. He's just that guy. It, it, to me, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee oh, Herman. So Herman's long ago. Big and, it, so, but there, there's, there's the thing, there's a scene where Pee-wee walks into the magic shop, which is his favorite place to go. And the guy behind the counter, the guy behind the counter is like, Pee-wee, we've got this new, you know. So I, I that's me and Brian. Like I walk into the guitar stand and say, hey, Andy, have you checked out the, <laughs> there's so much well you guys know there's so much stuff that gets released that you can't possibly try all of it or keep up with it but he kind of knows it's like you know back in the old days when you would go to the record store they kind of knew what your tastes were so if if you like this check this out right so brian is actually the he's how he's how i found the jhs line of pedals you know he was the guy that recommended the angry charlie to me which i put on my pedal board start using and that's how i met josh at, at jhs and he thought well, let's do a signature version of this pedal, you know. So, so yeah, that's and the other thing about it is that it's not only one of the greatest guitar shops, but they've got a three hundred seat venue that adjoins the shop. So it's where I do my local shows now too. Cool. So it's uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a loaded question. I thought that might have been from somebody at the sanctuary. Yeah, but yeah. they are they're they're a fantastic shop, knowledgeable guys, and just really really sweet people. I'm now, very biased, but yeah. Okay, so you just said the magic words then that I was about to ask you say you're, you're biased tube biasing in amps. <laughs> do you yeah. is that something you mess with you do you run your tubes biased hot yeah. cold or just whatever the tech sets it to though it's whatever the set to, to, I've, I've just um you know with the lone stars once i once i figured out i preferred the, the 34s over the 606s it's just it is what it is and, and i just dial everything with my pedals basically and why do you, you like know, 34s I, over 606s uh, in this particular amp, um, not all not all situations, but in this amp, like I say, it's a pretty bass heavy amp. So the thirty fours are tending to tighten up the low end significantly, and just and it, what it does to the top end is, is pleasing to me. Nice. I'm able to get that really nice sparkly kind of thing that I like to get with it. Again, I wish I could have some high-tech answer to some of these things, but <laughs> yeah, it, it, it turns on and I play through it. And uh, you know. 
but yeah, it's, those those things tend to be seemingly like for the guys you know with the you know getting all the gain from the amp. You know, those are going to have if you're not running the pedals and everything. So I'm just kind of doing things on the front end instead of the back end. Sure. Letting that power section do what it's going to do and then using my ear to dial on this end what I need, you know? Yep, yep. Uh, there's a couple of more. This, this first one is more of a shout-out more than anything from Barnett yeah. Schmidt. It says, hey, Barnett. Uh, Hi, Rick. Awesome interview. Yes, yes, it is an awesome, <laughs> awesome interview. I hope you like and subscribe and tell all your friends. Yeah, That's take right. That one. Take that one. Uh, um, can you please say hi to Andy for me? Hi, Andy from... Hey, Barnett. <laughs> Barnett. Barnett's a, a good friend, actually. You know, he and I met one night. Um, I, I was one of those nights that I was in Manhattan. I, I had a gig the next night at the Iridium, and Mike Stern was playing at the 55 bar. He quite famously plays this gig. You know, now that the the you know the COVID thing is lightening up a little bit, he's back playing now. But I'd gone to the gig, and they accept cash only, which you know I haven't carried cash in I don't know a long time now. So I literally like I couldn't I couldn't get in. It was like this is so weird. I know, you know my mic's my friend, but I'm not going to make a scene about it. So I literally was trying to figure out, man, I got to go down to the money machine or whatever. But that Barnett happened to be standing outside because they're waiting for the next set to start. So we just struck up a conversation, and uh, so I told him that yeah, I'm a friend of Mike's. I'm you know big fan of his as well, and I'm playing a gig the next night. So Barnett comes to my gig the next night. And they started coming to all my gigs, and now he's uh, he's been to all, all my stage at gigs. And he's a really sweet guy, that uh, is a guitar student and nice, yeah, nice, really really nice man. So hey, Barnett, good so to see you. So he did go man. on to Thank say you. that you have several mutual friends, um, but he yeah. says ad additionally, Andy, have you seen the old Sergeant Pepper movie with Peter Frampton in 1974? I uh, wouldn't 74. It had to be that had to be at least 77, 78. I mean, chronology. I'm the, long story short is <laughs> I have not. I just never, for whatever reason, being as the hugest Beatle fan as I am, you'd think that I would get around to seeing it, but I just I just have not. And I'm a huge Peter Frampton fan, and even as much of a big fan of the Bee Gees. I love them so much. But famously, I don't think that movie served any of them very well, right? I don't think it, it yeah, it just didn't sit well for some reason. So I've just kind of avoided it for that reason. Maybe someday I'll get around to checking it out. But yeah, I'm a I huge just, Peter Peter Frampton fan. My God, he's just one of my favorite players. Yeah, you know, I I did see a um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction or something a couple yeah. few years back on TV, and yeah. Peter Frampton was in the house band with Steve Lukather. Ah. Oh, and sheesh, man! I don't recognize what that might be. It was yeah. some Grammy. Beatles tribute, perhaps. Start oh, wow. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, maybe that's what it yeah. was. Man, Frampton's oh. tone. My God. It was amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. I saw I saw him on this most recent tour. Uh, he was calling it his farewell tour. I hope he still does some shows, but oh, he's just the top of his game, you know, just yep. and just a, just fabulous. Just a good guy. Uh, incredible. Such a unique voice. And when I say voice, I mean his songwriting voice. Yeah. Um, is uniquely his, you know, his, 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 his voicings he used, his, that melodic intent, the arlect, whatever he has, it's just, it's very specific to him. It's really beautiful. But, and as a player, he's just uh, incredible. Very, very awesome. unique. Incredible. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Uh, Another one from Fabricio. Uh, Andy, you returned to Danger Danger in 1997 to record a CD and later in 2002 for another album with Paul Lane on vocals. How was that experience for you? 
Okay, so that's that's not entirely true. Um, the the original band split. You know, maybe it was ninety three, ninety four. I made appearances on a couple of CDs. There wasn't really a reunion. In fact, it was just kind of retreads of a few songs that there was a there was a third album that was recorded for Epic called Cockroach that was supposed to come out after Screw It. So that would have been about ninety three. And a lot of problems start coming in. Just the just the the music industry was changing. Rap in Seattle had come in and bands like ours were just basically getting pushed to the side. And so that record, even though it was fully finished and very well received by the label initially, got got set on the shelf and the band ended up losing the record deal. But we couldn't get the rights to the record. So um that record didn't come out until God, I don't know, it might have been 10 years later when Bruno and Steve eventually got the rights to license it from the label. So I never really reunited with the band. The, the record that was done with Paul Lane was at this, that same time because right when things were starting to fall apart in that 93, 94 time period, uh, Ted left the band and sued Bruno and Steve. It's a long, long drama story, but uh, the label was like, well, no problem, just we'll still put the record out, just redo the vocals. That's when we found Paul Lane to come in and because we'd heard a record he'd done with Bruce Fairburn back in 1990 and a great, great voice. And he re-sang all the vocal tracks. So now at this point, there's two versions of the record. One with Steve, I mean, uh, one with Ted Pauly, one with, uh, with Paul Lane. And again, so when, when, when they finally got the rights to re release the record, they released the version, you know, the double CD with both, with both versions of the record. So, but I, I did one reunion. Uh, I did. We did five gigs, and it was I don't know six or seven years ago, and it was good fun, you know, because I had you know there was enough time had gone by, and because you know I, even though I'm aware there's a lot of fans of that band, I wanted to you know really have my own thing. But um, eventually, yeah, it was it was fun to do some gigs, and 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 maybe it'll happen again. We'll see, you know, because I know there's there's people out there that are just very heavy '80s fans, so I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. It, it, the 80s seems to be coming back, I've noticed. It's, uh, yeah, maybe. Oh, how can you not notice? But yeah, I see uh, a lot of kids walking around with the uh, the, the mullet haircut. Um, and, <laughs> That's incredible. You know, John Mayer's latest single that I heard, like, could could you rip off the 80s any more than that? You know. Oh, really? I, I haven't heard it yet. Yeah. yeah no, it, he, well, why not? He would have grown it up It just in sounds like era. Africa by Toto. It, it's, oh, cool! It's the synth sounds. Oh. I believe he's got the same percussionist playing on it and everything. And it's just like, oh, nice! Man, yeah, it's like the sound palette of that song, um, yeah. but different chords and yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you could see where you know he's of the age where he probably grew up, and 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 that was an influence on him that that era. So why not? Yep. You know, he's done so many things on his own. He's done the the bluesy thing and the. Certainly a great pop songwriter, so why not go back and visit some of your roots, you know, if that if that's what that is, and I'm guessing that's what that is. But uh Yeah, I, man. I thought I was down to my last question, which was a ripper from Charles Cilia, but somebody ah. else just snuck on in. Um Dave C says, Andy was making a tribute song to EVH that he played in a stage it show. Is it finished yeah. and will it be released soon? Very emotive track. Thank you. And so that's the thing with these staging gigs. Uh, so frequently, it, it gave me the opportunity to sometimes write songs in the moment, you know, like like the week that Eddie passed away, whatever that, whenever that was th that weekend, I, I think I played a tune that I wrote. Right now, I, I don't think I remember it well enough to play it. 
because sometimes I'll write music so quickly. And if I don't consistently work on it after the fact, it may go by the wayside. So to be honest, for me to play that EVH song, I'm going to have to go back to the stage at recording and find it and go, oh, okay, that's what I did. Because right now I'm not remembering. <laughs> and that's embarrassing to admit that. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of tunes that I'll write like that, that, you know, in the moment, it just happens. And then it's just a matter of whether I, you know, how do I want to keep working on this or come back to it? So I, I appreciate the, the, the comment about it from the, the question there. But uh, yeah, I mean, all the, all these things, uh, I'm hoping to get everything released at some point, you know, because I've, I've been writing so much material in the last few years that I can't keep up with all of it. If that's kind of a strange thing to say. Wow. Wow. Know? But yeah. so it, it's a good problem to have. The, it the, is, isn't the it? Muse, the muse has been kind. And uh, so, but sometimes it can be fleeting. But luckily there's a lot of documentation because I record all the shows and there's always demos or voice voice memos of uh, of the writing, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll get it all out there eventually. So, but thanks yeah, thanks for reminding me of the tune because, you know, I need to get back to that. It might be something I'll enjoy uh, furthering along. But it, it was certainly... Uh, emotional in the moment and, and intended just to be that yeah. were you friends with ed i never met him never, never saw met. him no i saw him once actually i have to say but no we never met or never hung you know i really regret that but i, I never never lived in la and didn't really spend that much time out there but i did see i saw him play once at an amp show it was an ernie ball night when he was back in the ernie ball days with it was steve morrison albert lee i think and uh and eddie and of course you know just it was great to be in the presence of right just Nobody, nobody like him. Yep. Just, Actually, just incredible. A, a good friend of mine, uh, his band opened for Van Halen back in like 92 on the For Unknown oh. Carnal Knowledge tour. Um, yeah. Australian group called The Baby Animals, and he, he's got some ripper stories. of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like that band, Baby Animals. They were great. Oh, yeah, great band. Great band. Still yeah. kicking. Yeah, um, great. And Dave's just an amazing guitar player. I love his playing. Sweet. Influence. Uh, nice. But there's a video that, just surfaced not that long ago just after ed passed and started seeing it of eddie backstage playing a a, a red strat uh and mm. just hanging out with baby animals and just jamming out Aww. and man hearing him playing that guitar and i'm, I'm looking at that guitar going i've played that guitar i've, I've no. played that <laughs> oh because it's your buddy's guitar it's my buddy's guitar yeah oh yeah, that's yeah. cool man yeah that's and i'm thinking cool. to myself yeah that was before i played it so Damn it, I should have licked that guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Please get some DNA in me somehow. Uh, right? I had Dweezil yeah. on a, a few weeks back and I, I said to him, hey man, when, when Dave Leslie was at your place and he saw the Hendrix Strat, I hate to break it to you, but he licked it when you weren't looking, hoping to <laughs> absorb some of Hendrix's DNA. <laughs> oh, that's fucking great, man. I love it. Never thought about licking guitars, but maybe give me a whole new idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> another question just quickly popped in there. Oh, JR Guitar, you got in there very, very quick, uh, before, right. just as we we're about to round things up. Ask Andy if he still has that electric sitar. I think it was. Um, yeah. It was a Matheny tune at Granada Theatre in Dallas. So, yeah, do you still have uh, the, the electric sitar? Yeah, sitar? sure. There was a beautiful tune. Of yeah. It's a tune called Last Train Home and it's just one of the most beautiful melodies. Yeah, it's just, it's a Jerry Jones uh choral kind of uh um you know 
type type electric sitar. And uh, it's a beautiful thing, but it's just one of those things you can only use it very sparingly, right? You know. Yep. Like, yep. Uh, yeah. But no, but it's yeah, I do. And so he must have been at that Granada gig. And I did. I think I did. I actually took it to New York to play at the Iridium too once. But I would too, and I had a. There was a tune that I would use it on with Olivia back in the day, and I used it on. Um, I did a pop vocal record in the mid '90s called Orange Swirl. It's used on a tune called state of mind but it's one of those things you just use it on one track every every decade or so yeah yeah <laughs> but did it's a, ever, but it's a fun yeah did you ever go down the right. road of maybe trying line six variax that had all that kind of stuff built no in I, I never have i never have man but I, i'm sure they're very a useful tool for somebody needing everything in a box you know well i i did try to go down that road uh, yeah i was sick of I was saying yes to a lot of cover band gigs and depending on who was singing, oh, we tune in this tuning, no, we tune up, oh, we do it in this key. Uh, Finally, yeah. I had a transposing guitar and, and all that. I, I did find that the modern yeah. guitar, it's like somebody doing an impersonation of somebody. Well, it all you, you're is. Gonna, yeah. You're going to find that characteristic about somebody and you're going to yeah. overdo it. Um, right. That makes and, sense, yeah. And so, for instance, all the Telecaster sounds were just too twangy. The, the Les Paul ah, was just too okay. throaty. Uh, okay, and the yeah. other thing I found was you had a, a, a piezo pickup in the bridge. And if right. you were using the, the trim and it made contact with the body, this God almighty clunk would come out through your pickups. <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, sure. Which is something I never thought of. Yeah. Well, it was, it was uh, you know, I remember somebody having one and going through the motor. It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting that it can do that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I'm but sure, I'm like, still, you, you know, if you needed yeah. it to have a banjo for a particular song and not have to <laughs> take take it out in the right, yeah, it'd work. It'd work. Okay, yeah. So exactly. I've been saving one question up for Charles Celia. Oh. Oh, now, dear. actually, speaking of those Line Six Very Axes, um, Charles, right. if you're still watching, am I right in thinking you helped develop the Shurikan or whatever it's called, the metal version that they came out? The guy from 12-foot ninja had a signature model with all the modeling and everything. I think Charles actually came up with the, the oh, body wow. design and everything. But Charles wants yes. to know, and yes. this is a burning question. Oh, dear. And this is of particular interest to me as well. Andy, how do you Americans keep such magnificent hair as you grow older? <laughs> well, I don't know how... <laughs> That's, yeah, uh, it's it's. Uh, I don't put the bucket on my head as much you these days. <laughs> I don't... Um, I, you know, I thank God my, my father, Gene, who lived to the age of 92, had a pretty good head of hair, you know, till the end there. So, but I mean, it, I, yeah, I don't know that all Americans have fared this well. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of head shaving going on too, man. So, but I, I, for whatever reason, I still got mine. So if I, if I feel fortunate, I don't think I would look good with a shaved thing oh, happening. Man. I've been down that road Maybe. where I've tried shaving my yeah. head because it, it ain't what it used to be uh and yeah. oh, oh, you're I'm doing fine man that's good i just i just look wrong with a shaved head but i was always a yeah. long hair guy and i really missed yeah. shaking that around on stage and <laughs> now i just have well, glasses thanks, thanks for the burning my face. So I'm like, this is gonna go one of two ways <laughs> <laughs> so there was a, it remind me of uh, my friend i mentioned earlier the, the work for laney was telling me that you know either in the uk he was at a he went to an ingve clinic sometime in the early 90s and you know, and and Ingve's up there. He's just answering questions from the crowd, and somebody goes, uh, "Ingve, have you got a dog?" <laughs> Ingve goes, "I don't have a dog," and he's taking more questions. And later on, it comes back to the same guys. 
Well, if you had a dog, what would it be? <laughs> Which is... So it's up there with what shampoo do you use, I suppose. Right? <laughs> I just you, love that somebody ask, asking Babe, he's got a dog. Well, if you had a dog. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess Burning I, there, questions. There was one more. Uh, folks, um, uh, we are yeah. fast approaching three hours. I told you the time goes by. You told okay. me we might be cranking and rambling. I'm all right with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do believe I said if I got an hour out of you, I'd be happy. But yeah, um, Then you're these, three times happy. Three times happy. Yay. So, folks, if you have any, any questions, now is the time to drop it before I round things up. But I got to go watch the McCartney show, man. Come on. Jethro Skull, <laughs> obviously not his real name, wants to know, How do you Andy, know do you still have the Seymour Duncan convertible you used at NAMM way back? And do you use it much? Wow. That's what I used at NAMM. That must have been that very first Kramer NAMM that I did in 89. Um, no, but I, I I I did have one for a while in the '80s, and I thought that was a tremendous amp. I've uh, heard this. You familiar? They were the little 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 module you know, tubes you'd replace. They had like characteristics. You know, one's a higher gain, one's lower gain, and okay, it was a pretty pretty cool concept that Seymour had, and uh, I loved it. But they, I think they broke down a lot. You know, maybe they were problematic over time. But I don't still have it, and uh, you don't see many of them out there anymore, right? So That's what was switchable, pretty switchable about that? I'm well aware of Bruce Egnator's technology that, um, with the, the whole module thing and that he laid a license to Randall and now is licensed to okay. Synergy. Uh, and that basically recreates the preamps of various classic okay. amps. What did the Seymour Duncan one do? This was straight up. It had a, you know, you had to take a panel off the top of the amp. And I believe there was, depending on the model, three, it was four or five basically it was a, a type of car that you know had a 12ax7 connected to it that you would dip in but each of them had it was just various stages of gain basically some were higher gain some were lower gain and maybe there was other characteristics that they would have had that they might have been named a certain thing i don't, I don't vividly remember yep. but it was a pretty cool concept you know and it, I, I i got it to work great for me for a while there awesome. i was in a band called brinker when i first moved to texas in 85 and that was the amp i was using you know. Nice, nice. I uh, yeah, man. I I met Seymour uh, at Nam. Just yeah, so he was doing oh, a signing, a and yeah. um, I have seen him on Tone Talk, uh, another great uh, YouTube live podcast. Friends of mine, um, and man, that guy can talk, and he's got some stories. Let me tell you. Oh, he's a beautiful guy, and yeah, yeah, he's he's done some stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I love I love him a lot. We're still good friends. Yeah, we yeah. we met at a Dallas guitar show. Back in about '89, just right at that time period, you know, we we play we played together at one of the gigs, and I recognize that he's a you know great finger style telly player, and we got on great. So, even though I'm a Demarzio endorser, he and I are very tight friends and oh, great. great guy. Awesome, yeah, awesome. No, fantastic. Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, okay, there's one last question that somebody has snuck in. Does Andy miss the poser days? In, not really. I mean. You know, I, I, anybody would balk at the word poser. You yeah, know, I know. I was just thinking. I, that I, I came. I came into that band of a really, you know, a, a pretty seasoned player. So I don't feel like I ever <laughs> was part poser. But then again, there I was wearing wearing what I wore with my hair the way I wore it. So, but that's just what if people. That's what wore you consider po Huh? It's just what people were wearing back then. It was definitely, and there was lots of hairspray. So. Yeah, I you know I would never call myself a poser, but if that's what you want to consider me at that time, I get it. 
So no, I, you know, whatever your point of that question is. <laughs> what, what do you what do you what do you say to that? You know. <laughs> he did throw in another one saying, uh, yeah. asking if you toned down your leads in Danger Danger. Nuno, however, was all over the place. Say what now? Uh, he said, did Andy tone his leads down in Danger Danger? Nuno, however, was all over the place. Turn so, my leads down. I don't understand what that means. As in, um, maybe hold back a little in your playing. Oh, oh, um, not really. I think, again, it, it just whatever was right for the tune, you know. Um, I think Nuno's stuff was incredible. But I would have I would have played what I thought was suited for, you know, the tune or the moment. I mean, I certainly shredded out a bit. Like it, if there was extended stuff at the end of a tune or whatever, and I get to blow more than usual. And I would, you know, I was slipping in all my chromatic stuff and hipper stuff and Maybe the band didn't dig it as much, but I was I was being me, right? But yeah. in any situation I'm in, I'm 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 hoping that uh, you know it's just right for the moment, whatever whatever it needs to be. Not not always about what's great for me. It's you know you want to you know, do what's right for the tune. Yep. Well, I've so, tried, some, to, tried to try to play very good. <laughs> some some guy named yeah. Brett has just jumped in to say Andy is the epitome of not a poser. So. That's a glowing uh, endorsement from Brett Garcia, right? No, there. I appreciate that, Brett. Brett's the man. <laughs> no, and, and and that guy made him. Not, he may not have meant anything negative by that, or or whatever was intended. But uh, yeah, I mean that that era was known as a poser area, but there was some there was some really great players. Yeah, the 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 entire band Winger, which got really you know much maligned in the states because of the Beavis and Butthead cartoon, you know, the, the nerd in the in the show wore a Winger shirt, and it was. They got really drugged through the mud as like, you know, here's here, here's what's wrong about this style of music. They were the one band that could play their asses off. You know, you had Rod Morgenstein from the Dregs and Kip, who's a, a genius, and Reb playing better than anybody. You know, so, yeah, for what it's worth, you know, yeah. there was some amazing players po posing, posing or not. <laughs> so when that era came to an end, I, I did read something recently with Dee Snyder. And he was saying that he went from being, you know, king of the world to all of a sudden having the record companies just saying, yeah, yeah we just don't do that anymore. Do what? Well, the way you sing, the way you dress. And, you know, he was just sure. saying he had to go and work some very ordinary jobs for, for many years, trying to put food on the sure. table. And sure. we'd be getting recognized and, and people saying, hey, man, are you? And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, people tell me I look like him. And so wow. did you? That's tough. So. In Danger Danger, you said, you know, that the music scene changed. Yes, um, very much. Did you, is that the same kind of uh, thing that the, the record companies put to you? It's just like, hey, we don't... It, really no, it was, there was, there was very much, you know, it was something that Kip told me, you know, he, they had, he'd gone up to the head of MTV, which at the time that, that MTV controlled the music industry, because if you weren't on MTV radio wouldn't add your track you know it was very much you know about that um but it was basically mtv's told kip they brought their new video and said well you know and then told us too don't you so we don't like your band we don't you know don't even bother making videos because they were already on to the next thing yeah. even though you know we had this fan base that, that didn't even know we had a second record out because they just they just were already kind of moving away no matter what success that might have been there, they were just changing with what they thought 
needed to be the next thing, which is valid. I mean, I have no problem. And there was so many people that would complain about, you know, Nirvana or whoever, you know, changing. But it was it needed to happen. Things were getting so overproduced and overpolished. I loved what was happening, you know. But it was a shame again for those bands that were reliant on that exposure. And if you didn't get that, then you didn't get on radio. So it ended a lot of careers, unfortunately. For me, it was fun because I just went back to doing what I was doing: session work, going on and making my instrumental records. You know, I wasn't relying on being that guy in that band. It was a great gig, and I I loved the hey. It was like childhood dream come true, you know. Like I said, doing those tours with Kiss and Alice Cooper, and so some childhood fantasy stuff. But at that time in my life, I was kind of I'd moved beyond even that being the goal. It's just I just I just wanted to be a great player, you know. I wanted to get the call to get into Miles Davis's band. I wanted to be in the next Mike Stern, right? Yep. So, but again, so yeah, it's 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 a bit of a head job for a guy like D to be that famous and well-known but then okay i've got to go do something else well luckily my something else was with guitar you know yeah yeah and just kept just kept and just kept doing it yep so um question for me when it comes to um session work are you just doing session work from home with with the setup that you have well yeah i, I do quite a bit here um uh, and uh but i had a, a remote session two days ago meaning at, at, a, at a proper recording studio which yep. Obviously, with COVID, we haven't done as much of. And Dallas used to have a really pretty good scene going on in the in the seventies, eighties. And I came into the tail end of it and was real busy for for a while there. But uh, obviously, there's so much production going on at home studios that it doesn't happen quite as much. But I man, to, to be in a band with a rhythm section, even if it's just jingle stuff, it's fantastic. You know, so we we had a, you know, a nice eight hour session and cranked out you know sixteen tracks of stuff and. It's a blast, you know. I I really love doing it. I just don't do it as much anymore because the technology is here. They can just email me the track and I can play. But nothing is like being in a room with the guys and playing together. It's just there's no other thing like it. Yeah, yep. Now, we're just saying about, you know, how the record companies, if a certain new style comes in, how, you know, oh, we just don't like your thing anymore. I think they've lost grip of that now just with – the way that we have social media and, and people can be out well, there yeah, making great music in their bedrooms. I see some. Well, yeah. Scary guitar players. Uh, oh, of course. Kids just on YouTube. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. Hey, do you, is there any young guys out there that you see now that you just go, oh, mind blown? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I, I'm going to blank on the names. Oh, um, his last name is Meter. Josh Meter. Josh Meter, um, I have to check him out. Look him, look, look him up. I, I know he's it's native Aussie, but he grew oh, really? up in, in Holland. Grew up in Holland. Uh, he may be back in, in in Sydney now. Josh Meter, and I actually took a lesson with him. I think he's maybe early twenties. So M E C E R, M E A D E R. Josh Meter. E A D E R. Okay, Josh. Yeah, I've never seen such flawless technique, and so. I was watching a, a podcast that he had done, a, you know, an interview, and he talked about this particular picking thing that he was into. And I he says, "Yeah, I'm doing lessons on you know, people hit, hit me up on Instagram." So I just went on Instagram, said, "Hey, man, I want to hang." So we had a great lesson. And he, uh, his father was a bassist in a gypsy, uh, gypsy jazz group, and so when Josh, as a, as a young guy, developed you know interest in the guitar, I think his dad gave him. At the age of, from the age of seven on, gave him guitar lessons every morning for an hour before school. Wow! Like every day. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so again, if you just check out some of his, his videos on Instagram, he's probably on YouTube as well, but um, stunning, just absolutely stunning ability. It's just, just jaw dropping, you know? Wow. I've so, just taken but yeah, but, of that. I'm going to get onto him and see if he can come on for a bit of a chat. Oh yeah, you should. Absolutely. And again, I th- he may be in Sydney now. Uh, fellow, fellow Aussie. So, but yeah, but brilliant, brilliant town. But again, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many guys that I don't need, I don't know the names of, but yeah. there's clearly just, you know, generations of, of talented guys and girl and girls. They're growing, growing up playing stunning, you know, guitar. And it's, uh, it's inspiring, man. It's just, just to know that this thing's going to keep living and growing yeah. and, uh, yeah. and, and there's and a guy in people Russia, happy. Max Ostro. Have you come across him? Yes. I've seen him too, man. Fantastic. Beautiful vibe, right? I've been trying to get him on for a chat. He's uh, he's yeah. only sixteen or something. Um, That's incredible. And I put the word out there. Does anybody know Max? And I had somebody said, "Yeah, I've I've worked with Max. He's his he's his email address." And uh, I tried getting in touch with him, and he said his his English isn't so good. Uh, uh, he's not ready yeah. for an interview. So I got okay. another uh, guitar YouTube YouTuber from Russia to translate for me to say. Hey, how oh, about great. we pre-record it and I can put subtitles and all that? And he, and he just like very politely said, oh, I'm just not ready for interviews. And he looks uh, kind of awkward just to see him. Yeah. I didn't know if no, he was putting it on or not. That's I what I love about genuine. him. Man. Yeah, yeah. No, I think so. I think so. There's just this beautiful thing about that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's, found, he's found his place, but yep, yeah. Absolutely. It, it's my boy. <laughs> but um, Incredible. Yeah, Italian guy, um, Mancuso. Yes, I know who you're talking about. Plays with his fingers. Yeah, yeah, that's like, no, yeah, brilliant yeah, technique, man. Yeah, wow. beautiful, absolutely mind blowing. Andy, yeah. we've hit that three yes. hour mark, mate. You must be uh, um, lovely. Need a, a drink or something? So I'm gonna wrap yeah, things up. I'm pretty and much ready. It's thank you so me, much for so. your time. It's been a great little glad, chat. Um, glad I'm sure. To hang with you, man. Yeah, I'm sure we're everybody's clapping at home and. <laughs> <laughs> And thanks to everybody for hanging in, man. That's a, that's a long ride to be on the journey for. So yeah, hopefully yeah. everybody's I, I gotta say, fun out there. The longer one, the longer podcasts are the ones that get the most views. Um, that's crazy. Funny enough, right, yeah, well, yeah. But I will point out to viewers it. if you are watching um, that you can get the audio only versions on mm. your regular podcast sites. But it's better to come and join us live. So sure. subscribe and hit the notification bell so you can see when I go live and all these kinds of stuff. Always good. Yeah, yeah. Andy, anything you need to plug before we go? Ah, just, uh, let's see here. Oh, uh, the most recent record I did was called uh, The Redcoats, which is a band with Greg Greg and Matt Bissonette. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, who are, you know, have a, a long pedigree of amazing rock and roll history. Um, yeah, so that came out uh, a couple couple months ago. And we're, gonna, we're actually doing our first gig together here at the Guitar Sanctuary on August 13th, which people can live stream as well. So that'll be the inaugural Redcoats gig. That'll be fun. And then as always, you can find me at guitarexperience.net. No E before the X, Guitar Experience. That's my instructional site where you can come and learn from me uh, after you've tried to learn by ear, of course. <laughs> cool. Yeah, man. Then come catch me on stage on Saturdays and hopefully I'll be on tour next year. Awesome. Awesome. There's a lot of thank yeah, yous man. coming through in the chat. I just want to point out one yeah, thing. Thank man. you, guys. The yeah. video getting around of where Steve Vai sees you in the crowd and goes and puts oh. a guitar over your neck. That, that is awesome. It, that was an incredible thing. And I've known Steve, we met in 1989, but then when I became an Ibanez endorser, then the, oh, we started you know playing together at events. And then as G3 started happening, every time they came to Dallas, they would invite me to come play. 
So we've been on stage many times together, but that particular show, it was the anniversary of Passion and Warfare. So it was quite a bit of production. So he said, oh, Andy, please come to the gig. Can't invite you to play tonight because there's a lot going on, but you know, come to the show and I'll see you after the gig. Okay, great. And I, I take my, my wife and my other friend, Sylvia, because Sylvia knows Steve forever because she's in the label business. And it's about it's been about two and a half hours of the show, right? And uh, and so they they go off to to freshen up in the restroom, and what's the last tune? And Steve comes out with a wireless in the crowd, right? He knows I'm there, but he has no idea where I'm sitting. I'm just kind of in the middle and this down the aisle a bit, and he's he's got Thomas behind him with his tech, and and you see it on the videos, like you see him see me, and he, his face just lights up a certain way, and he instantly takes his guitar. He doesn't even think about it. Yeah. He just sees me and you know, he he couldn't he couldn't have known where I was sitting. And if you look at the video, you see him trying he's trying to hand me his pick, but I'm oh I've got my pick ready to go, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like because on it's one of those things where during his show he'd had these pre record um segments like at some point Joe Satriani appears on the big screen. It's like, Hey Steve, let's jam or whatever and they'd have this worked out thing where Steve had pre-record. I mean, Joe had pre-recorded some 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 jams in the studio, and they're playing back and forth. I'm like, man, that's so cool. Then later on, John Petrucci shows up. I'm like, oh man, check this out. And I'm going, I want to play. You know, I I literally had that thought. So I guess I'd put it out to the universe because there, sure enough, at the end of the gig, yep, there he is. He sees me, and it's just it's a funny moment. So, P.S. You know, my 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 friend and my wife are coming out of the restroom. Like, what is going on out there? Because all the all the crowd had gotten up on their chairs to see Steve and I in the middle of the the the, the arena there, you know, the crowd, the the theater, or whatever it was. So they come back, you know, like what the hell happened? It's like, well, you know, you'll see it on YouTube, I guess. But it yeah, was, it, it was it was a wonderful moment. But what a, what a sweet nature thing it was for him to just, without even having a second thought about it, handing me his guitar. And what That's are you awesome. gonna do, you know? That's all. Try to play something good, you know. <laughs> Talk about being no, put he, on the spot, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's a he's a great guy, great friend, a great mentor for me. A lot of respect, man. A lot of love. Awesome, Andy. Yeah. A lot of respect and a lot of love from the people in the in the, the chat room uh, uh, coming your way. Mutual. As well, mate. So thank you, man. Thank you again for your time. And oh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. End screen button, which plays this really cool logo. As I say, thanks for tuning in, folks. Like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Bye. Cheers, guys. Thanks, sir.